You're listening to the audio-only version of the Moe Gamer podcast. Don't forget you can watch a video version of this episode over on YouTube. Check moegamer.net for a link to the channel. And now, on with the show. Hello everyone and welcome to the Moe Gamer podcast. Sorry it's been quite a while, but uh, both Chris and I have been any combination of busy and ill and exhausted and all that sort of thing so 2020's got off to a great start for both of us uh, but we're here now so i'm pete davison from moeagamer.net and i'm joined by chris kasky of mrgilderpixels.com so how are you doing chris i'm doing all right ready to uh-huh. talk about the video games yeah good stuff so um as usual we're going to follow our standard three-part format today uh we're going to kick off with some news and because it's been quite a while since we met, there's some news we're going to be talking about is probably a little bit older now, um, but it's it's stuff that we we wanted to mention anyway, um, and stuff that's that's still relevant to us. And then it's still relevant. Our... It hasn't happened yet. So yeah, as, far exactly. as I'm concerned, it's still new. Exactly. If, the, if the thing we're talking about isn't exist to buy yet, then it's still worth talking about as news. No, the news is only the stuff that happened today. You know that. <laughs> but yeah, whatever. Um, yeah, and then after that, our second segment will be what we've been playing lately. So um, with it being quite a while, hopefully we've both got quite a few things to talk about there. I know I've got uh, a fair few. So. Um, and then our third segment today is our topic-based discussion, as usual, and today we're going to be talking about beat-em-ups uh, as a specific genre or genres, depending on how our discussion goes. Um, so yeah, that's the plan for today. So, news. Uh, starting from when I remember to start taking notes on news stories. Uh, the first one I've got here is that uh, Little Town Hero, which is Game Freak's uh, RPG on Switch, which is uh, based around the idea of uh, sort of fighting things using ideas and concepts and that sort of thing. Uh, that is getting a physical release uh, in spring of 2020, uh, courtesy of uh, Nisa, Nisa America. Uh, so that's cool, uh, because up until this point, it's been out for a little while now. I think it came out before Christmas, mm-hmm. um, and uh, it was digital only to begin with. But uh, yeah, it's good to see that uh, that this is getting a packaged release it may well be one of those ones that uh nisa do where it's they, they just do like a, a single run of them um and then that's it so stuff stuff like lapis labyrinth and stuff um stuff like that had had a similar situation so those people who really want a boxed package copy can have a nice one that's got an art book and soundtrack and little bits and pieces and other goodies in there without having to pay too much over the odds for it so um all we know on that is that it's uh coming in spring 2020 um but yeah it looks like looks like a nice addition so I, I will probably grab that yeah i'm very excited about it um number of reasons right like first of all game freak's non-pokemon stuff is always really fascinating yeah, um, yeah you definitely. know we we had a similar discussion a couple episodes back when i was talking about how much i was enjoying giga wrecker mm-hmm. um they, they just they have really they have a culture internally where they do a lot of like internal game jams and stuff and then like change yes. change things yeah. into like projects if they've got a really good idea. So um, they're really a creative batch. And this is going back years before Pokemon even existed. Like one of my favorite games ever on the original 8-bit Nintendo's Mendel Palace. Mm-hmm. And that was them. And um, really, just I've, I've never played a game like Mendel Palace. Yeah. Oh, since then not even in like the indie sphere has anyone ever tried to like replicate it in like a tribute kind of way like it's such a 
wholly unique game. So yeah. uh, they do a lot of interesting work. Uh, also, Toby Fox did the soundtrack for Little Town yes. Hero. Yes, that's right. And so he's great. Yes, yeah. Little Town Hero is one of those games that seem to sort of divide opinion quite a bit. I saw I saw a lot of uh, sort of reviews kind of crapping out a bit, but then also some people I follow on Twitter whose opinions I generally trust and align with, um, they had a great time with it. So I'm uh, I'm expecting to enjoy that myself as well. Yeah. Well, the thing about Little Town Hero is like the RPG like moniker is very loose. Right, yeah, like yeah, yeah. it's not really an RPG in the traditional sense. It's more of like a, not even like a. It's got like sim elements in in a way. Like as is my understanding, like this isn't a specific like adventure RPG like we know of. Like you're not forming a party. You're not really developing a character in the same way. It's it's got like a heavy social element to it, wherein you're exploring the town and talking to people to get the ideas that end up becoming yeah. part of what you can execute in battle but it's not like there's no random encounters the game is just a series of protracted boss battles you always yeah. you always know what the boss is going to be when the boss is going to strike and the idea is like the prep work for for the boss fight it, it's not really like an rpg in like the traditional adventure sense so i think a lot of people probably dove into it once again not willing to appreciate it on its own merits right like yeah. this is yeah yeah this isn't an RPG that we're looking for. This is something totally different that we don't know how to dissect and understand mechanics. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, all our all our typical complaints. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, looking forward to giving that a try. And uh, like I say, it'll be really nice to have a, a boxed copy of that as well. All right. Uh, continuing on, the next story we've got is... Um, this is a really interesting and odd story to me. Um, this is um, Taito has announced a game called Toho Spell Bubble, which is uh, Taito making a fan game of a series of Japanese doujin games. Which is oh, this is just blowing my mind kind of in, in, in a weird sort of way. It's but yeah, it's it's they're basically making. Um, a new puzzle bubble style puzzler, so shooting colored colored balloons up the screen in matching colors and that sort of thing, uh, with Toho characters. Um, and it looks adorable. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so there's I've watched some gameplay footage, and it, it, it look, it's one of those games that kind of looks absolutely baffling when you watch gameplay of it with no context. But I imagine it's one of those things that you can sort of get into the groove of once you've once you've got an idea of the of the basic mechanics. Sure. But yeah, it's, it's sort of a, a really nice-looking, colourful game with little chibi Toho sprites. Um, and it's got uh, arrangements of famous Toho tracks um, from a lot of artists who uh, are known for doing arrangements of the music from the games. And uh, Zuntata are contributing to the music as well. So oh, all round, this is going to be uh, a, a really cool um, kind of Toho spin-off from The Sound of Things. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. And just... Um the opportunity to buy Puzzle Bobble on modern consoles, essentially, yes. is why I'm really yeah. excited. Like, I'm not really in the, like, Toho, like, fan sphere, but, like, mm -hmm. um, I love, you know, as we've talked about in our Puzzler episodes in the past, like, I, uh, there are certain franchises where, like, I expect there to be an entry for every console. Yeah. So I can yeah. stay on, so I can always stay on top. I always want to have a modern puzzle bobble to break out on whatever current console is, is existing. Yeah. I always want to have a Tetris. I always want to have a Poyo. So this is kind of, this is the new puzzle bobble, so I need to have it. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, because there, there hasn't been like a a Neo Geo um, release of Puzzle Bubble yet, has there on, uh, on like the arcade archives or anything like that? Oh, maybe. I don't really pay attention to those. I don't remember seeing one. Um, because I I feel like it's one of those things that I would have probably picked up if uh, if I could see it. Okay, uh, next story we've got uh, is that Axis has confirmed a bunch of Atomi games are coming to Nintendo Switch in 2020. Um, these appear to be um, uh, Code Realized Guardian of Rebirth, Code Realized Future Blessings, Color Cross Malice, Color Cross Malice Unlimited, Cafe Enchant, and Pio Fiore No Bancho. Um, I don't know any of these. I, I'm vaguely familiar with Code Realize and Color Cross Malice, uh, but I haven't played them. But I know most of those are pretty well regarded. So, And also, people are always happy to see new Atomi games getting released, and Axis are the specialists in those at the moment, so good for them. Mm-hmm. Um, so no exact uh, launch windows for those yet, uh, but they're on the way this year. <laughs> yes. Yeah. As are a lot of things. Yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> moving on. Uh, Mobile Suit Gundam Extreme versus Maxi Boost on ON, whatever it is, um, yeah. is releasing for PlayStation 4 worldwide in 2020. Uh, now, this is cool because I know there's been a lot of Gundam games that have remained confined to Japan um, over the last few years, and uh, sort of people have imported Japanese or uh, Asian versions of those, but yeah, it looks like this one is is coming out globally, uh, which is cool. Um, yeah, so it's on the way. No, in twenty twenty. <laughs> so, um, so what is this? I what what is this? I I don't know this game at all. So the difference between like Maxi Boost and like other Gundam games is like Maxi Boost is an arcade game. It's, oh, okay. just, it's essentially just virtual on Gundam edition. Oh, nice. So, like, super fast-paced, like, multiplayer combat, um, like, boosting around, like, distance game, like, keep away, like, really just fun multiplayer. Mm-hmm. Um, 183 different playable mobile suits from across 36 different iterations of Gundam are playable, nice. uh, are playable in this. Uh, it's two-on-two battles, online and offline multiplayer, um... It's just really popular in Japanese arcades, and um, mm-hmm. for those of us who really love Virtual On and have trouble grasping with the fact that the series is dead, this is pretty much it. Like this is the closest we're ever going to get to a new <coughs> Virtual On. So if you're yeah. a Gundam fan and you love Virtual On, that's a Venn diagram that's basically a circle anyway. <laughs> uh, yeah. So this is really cool news, and this is really going to be worth getting. I mean, just for the range of playable characters alone, if you're a Gundam history fan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, well, it's, it's it's nice to see stuff that's that's previously remained confined to Japan or Asia, actually getting an official Western release as well. Because I know that sort of stuff like Gundam and Super Robot Wars and all that sort of thing. There's there's people who are hungry for them over here, mm-hmm. and they do they just don't make it over for whatever reason, whether it's licensing or uh, worries that they won't sell enough copies or whatever. But yeah, so this is cool. I mean, I've been a Gundam fan for most of my life, uh, uh-huh. and, and I'll be the first to admit that like. Gundam games are usually shit. Like, <laughs> like, I could count on... I wouldn't need a whole hand to count the amount of like genuinely good Gundam games I've played. Mm-hmm. 
there's like one that's like a simulator, like a piloting sim that was on the Dreamcast that was really incredible. And yeah. like, but like the ones that are good are usually these, the mm -hmm. ones that are arcade ports. Um, like all my best memories of um, of Gundam games from like the PS2 era are all from the ones that were like arcade ports and like versus fighters and like stuff like that. Like the, yeah. the ones that try to be like contained single player experiences tend to not be great. Mm -hmm. So this is a very exciting time. Um, and really just a cool celebration of the, the history of the franchise because of all the different playable suits. And hopefully they'll all have some, like, you know, handling differences and move differences and it'll really matter who you play as. It, it's just going to be yeah. a really good time. And it's this is something that I'll be able to have even friends who aren't anime fans enjoy playing, like, local multiplayer just because it's such, a, like, a bombastic, fun, arcade -y experience. Yeah. Yeah, good stuff. All right, uh, continue on. Uh, Sega is up to something with Sonic in 2020, so they've launched a new website called Sonic 2020, uh, where throughout the year, on the 20th of each month, they're going to release information on various projects. Um, and this is all a lead-up to next year, which is the 30th anniversary of Sonic, uh, for those of you who weren't quite feeling old enough yet. Um, but yeah, so... <laughs> Um, yeah, at the moment there's not a, not sort of a ton of information on here as yet. Uh, they've given away like some wallpapers and some. That's about it, really. Some smart, uh, some um, smartphone wallpapers, desktop wallpapers. Uh, it's like a Twitter header and some icons you can use on social media at the minute. Um, but then from like the twentieth of uh, this month onwards, twentieth of February onwards, we we should start getting some more information on some new Sonic stuff, uh, which is cool. Yeah. Because um, it's actually been quite a while since we've had a new Sonic game, isn't it? The last one was, what, Forces? Yeah, Forces. That was like two yeah. years ago. Yeah. No, yeah. I'm ready. I'm just hoping this means a new Sonic game, and I'm sh it surely does. <laughs> it surely does. Because um, yeah. we unapologetically love Sonic here at the Moe Gamer Podcast. Yes, we certainly do. We certainly do. Like, even the ones that people don't like. Sometimes especially the ones that people don't. Yes. Yeah. No. No. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Modern Sonic is fun, and I won't. Definitely. And we broker no argument. <laughs> All right. Uh, continuing on. Um, this is definitely old news at this point, but yeah. um, uh, Super Smash Brothers had its uh, first Fighters Pass completed uh, with Byleth from um, Fire Emblem Three Houses. Uh, which made everyone upset because Fire Emblem, Sword Boy, whatever. Um, apparently, apparently they're quite fun to play as. So, uh, apparently, they they handle quite differently from the other Fire Emblem folks. So, well, whatever. Um, but sort of um, another interesting development there is that they're doing a second um, pack of fighters, um, which is now available for pre-purchase, which is another six uh, fighters, and then presumably that will come with new stages and music and other bits and bobs as well just like this the the first fighters path has um they haven't announced what these fighters are going to be yet but they have said uh that they've already decided what they are uh mm. so basically um don't at sakurai on twitter <laughs> yeah. because he's already made his mind up well he so. also had a thing a couple days ago where it was like leave me alone i don't get to choose who the new people are. <laughs> like he was like he's like it's not my choice i'm told and then i like make it happen he's yeah. he's like just in general leave me alone. oh god yeah I, I don't envy him at all like like him and um 
what's his name, Masada from Pokemon. I really don't envy them at the oh, moment. Like they, yeah. they are having to deal with some of the worst people on the entire internet. And, uh, yeah, it's it's unfortunate. But, well, there we go. Yeah. So, yeah, so six new Smash characters are on the way. Um, huh. Can't wait. Yeah. I should uh, I should really get a feel for the uh, existing ones because I've I've played a little of most of them at this point, but I haven't played a lot of them yet. Like I I really enjoyed Banjo and Kazooie for one. Uh, um, they're a lot of fun, but I haven't spent a lot of time with them. I should really pick up Smash again and and do some more with that. I bought the Fighters Pass, but I haven't played it since jo- I haven't played Smash since Joker. Yeah. So so I've really got to dive back because I'm totally like yeah I'm gonna buy this new Fighters Pass obviously but like I didn't even play like <laughs> three quarters of the characters from the last one like I really yeah. got to give Terry a try and play on that King of Fighters stage I just never got around to it yeah yeah all right uh, moving on uh, so apparently the Skies of Arcadia developer really really wants to develop a sequel uh so i mean this isn't necessarily news as such because it doesn't necessarily mean anything no, but um, it made my heart but, smile <laughs> yeah exactly exactly so it, basically this this all stems from a, a twitter interaction um where uh kenji hiruta was uh, sharing some um some uh, artwork relating to skies of arcadia and sort of how happy he was that people were still um excited about the series and so on and uh yeah he he said outright that he really really wants to make a sequel to it um nothing to report on that other than that but he he is interested so if the opportunity does arise then hopefully he gets the chance to do that it would be so good yeah it would be so yeah good. i don't know so for those of you who don't put two and two together um mr gilder like gilder from Skies of Arcadia is my favorite RPG character of all time. Like, that's why I go by Mr. Gilder everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like, I, I love Skies. Like, so anytime anything remotely related to Skies is mentioned, I'm like, it's... my heart <laughs> can't take it. <laughs> nice. All right. Uh, continuing on, uh, we've got uh, some news that Mihoyo have announced that their action adventure game, Henshin Impact, uh, which is, uh, I don't know if it's a sequel or just a, a spiritual successor to Honkai Impact, which has been available on mobile, and possibly PC for a while. Um, yeah, this is this is coming to Switch. This is that game that everyone was like, it's a Chinese ripoff of Breath of the Wild. Oh, right. Okay, yeah, I'd, I'd forgotten the name of that. I, I remembered, yeah, I, I remember discussion about that, but I c- couldn't remember what it was called. Yes, I remember now. Um, but yeah. This this is looking really nice, and it's. I don't know if it's sort of deliberate in this trailer, but it's it's certainly starting to look a bit more distinct now as well. It's looking a bit more explicitly anime than Breath of the Wild. It's it's not got that same sort of washed out color palette that um, that Breath of the Wild's got. It's a, it's a lot more sort of vibrant. Yeah. So um, yeah, the new trailer doesn't really feature very much in the way of uh, information or gameplay or anything like that, but. Uh, yeah, it certainly looks nice. So, yeah, I'm excited. I mean, I, I love, I love kind of brightly colored open world games, and I love, mm-hmm. um, I have a specific love for exploring like games from other regions. So, like yes. this this recent influx of like Chinese developed stuff on like modern console has been really interesting to explore and learn more about. So, you, you, it's really surprising to like see how like different 
national identities and like ways of thinking really influence game design. Yeah, there's a there's a tremendous um, pull in the hardcore community to examine the history of Korean games specifically and how they are both mm-hmm. similar from and different from Japanese games. So yeah. now now that the China market's really starting to make a name for itself, this is just a new opportunity to explore different national sensibilities in game design. So yeah, really excited to see how this translates to this kind of open world experience. Yeah, cool. All right, uh, continuing on, uh, Konami has announced a new game. Uh, I was just thinking the other day, I've not really heard much from Konami recently, um, in general. Um, but yeah, they've they've announced a new game uh, via Koro Koro magazine in Japan. Um, it's called Solomon Program, or it may be called Solomon Program. That's, that's the title it's going under at the minute, anyway. Um, and this looks like it's going to be... Um, a sort of monster collecting game with strategy RPG battles. Uh, not a ton of information aside from some concept art and the news that there's going to be a manga and a, da- a code for a downloadable demo uh, in the next issue of Korokoro's sister magazine, Mira Koro Comic, um, which <laughs> is probably out at the time that you hear this. Uh, so if you have access to sort of Japanese publications and so on, you can you can probably get your hands on a demo at this point. Um Aside from that, not a lot of information about this, but it does have some cool character designs from what yeah, I can see. Yeah, I just like I thought it was news because it's a new Konami franchise. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, and it's you know, per our previous episode, I really like monster collecting and training games. I also, yeah. really love strategy RPGs. I really like when the two of them get together. So this is yeah, hopefully a great opportunity. Interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, new IPs are worth celebrating these days. Yes, yes, definitely. Especially when they're from like a company who is sort of um, sort of not been especially well regarded for uh, doing good things with their previous ones in the past, or you know, one that seems to have been quiet for a while. Like I say, like I say, I, I I was thinking about Konami the other the other day. I can't remember sort of the exact context, but aside from those. Um, Contra and Castlevania collections that they did a while back, I've not really heard much from them at all yeah. for a little while. But yeah, yeah, so this is cool. Be interested to see where this goes and if it uh, sort of makes it over here or anything. But yeah, check out the uh, check out the news stories on that because the, the art style is very nice, certainly. Okay, um, next piece of news is actually relevant to what we're talking about today, uh, which is news from Arc System Works. Uh, they are bringing the Double Dragon and Kunio Kun Retro Brawler Bundle uh, to PlayStation 4 and Switch on February the 20th, 2020, which is very exciting for several reasons. Um, firstly, this is a collection of great games. Um, secondly, a lot of these games haven't come out here before, uh, so a lot of the, a lot of the Kunioka ones specifically have remained confined to Japan previously. Um, probably the most interesting thing about this is that the ones that haven't come over here before is they, they've actually bothered to localize them. Um, so if, for the first time you'll be able to play a bunch of these games in English um, and there's what, 1, 2, 3, 4, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 there's 11 games that are being localised for the first time it's awesome which is awesome um, I'm so excited about this so excited about this because yeah these these are really great games from, from what I understand um, I'm not sure it's all of them because I, I think it's just the nes era isn't it i think i'm not sure if the 
I, I, I don't know. I haven't really looked into these games yeah. specifically, but... Um, this is a very gray area in my expertise. Technos yeah. games in general are not something I know a heck of a lot about. Yeah, because I know that the, the Kunio-kun series definitely continued up into the Super NES era. Oh, yeah. Because because I know that um, um, the the characters from, from River City Girls, uh, they previously appeared in one of the Super NES games that we didn't have over here previously. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah other than that i don't i don't know a ton about the series so this will be an ideal opportunity to explore it and uh get a feel for it but uh yeah it, it is also including the english versions as well so uh you're getting both renegade and um neketsu renegade kunio kun um because this was the era where games got quite heavily localized um when they came west like complete changing character design and setting in some cases yeah um and yeah this this these series were quite a, a significant example of of that going on so uh yeah this collection will contain both the western and localized japanese versions as well interesting i mean uh, you know um something that's relevant to our later discussion but like renegade is often considered the first beat-em-up Yes. Like, yes. So this is a pretty important game historically to be able to get your hands on. So mm-hmm. this is this is really exciting for a lot of reasons. Also because a lot of the games on this collection were for the Famicom Disk System. Yes. So even yes. if we wanted to have them over here in the West, like that, it would have been a challenge to do so. They would have had to mm. have been modified or downgraded to be cartridge compatible and then changed considerably. So this is a really neat piece of history. Yeah. Yeah, I think I read somewhere as well that they're, they're taking quite an interesting approach with this, which is rather than, in, in the cases where there are arcade versions of them, like Double Dragon, they're specifically doing the console versions. Yeah, this is uh, just this, the console yeah. stuff. Yeah, and that's that's noteworthy in the case of Double Dragon in particular, because the, con- the NES versions of those games are quite different from the arcade versions. Yeah. Uh, they're not straight ports. They're in in some cases they play very very differently. I mean, I think it's I can't remember if it's Double Dragon One or Double Dragon Two that's on the Nintendo Switch Online app at the minute, the NES app. Um, but yeah, I, I fired that up for the first time. I hadn't played the NES version before, and I was like, whoa, this is completely different. Um, and I was very surprised. But it's a, it's a really good game in its own right as well. So it's it's good to see these versions getting some acknowledgement as well. Cool. Right, uh, continuing on, at the time of recording, I think uh, Fantasy Star Online 2's beta has just kicked off on Xbox, um, and some news relating to that is that the manual for the uh, for the online beta test at the minute uh, has confirmed that um, it's going to be coming to Steam as well, so the PC version of this will be available via Steam as well as via Xbox.com or Xbox Game Pass or Microsoft Store or wherever it's going to be. Um, so yeah, those who prefer to keep everything in one place on Steam, uh, you'll be able to get Fantasy Star Online 2 via Steam, which is cool. Um, don't think there's any news about whether it's coming to other platforms yet. Um, the, the the story I'm looking at on Silicon Era at the moment says it will supposedly end up on all platforms outside of Japan, but I don't think there's been any confirmation of that as yet. Uh, so at the moment, the only platforms that have been specifically announced are um xbox one and pc so uh yeah we'll we'll have to wait and see on that i guess but the the beta test is currently ongoing and people are enjoying themselves so yeah so i know you're a um 
quite a fan of fantasy star particularly um sort of first one and fourth one and did you play fantasy star online the original one? Oh, religiously um, yeah yeah fantasy star online episode one and two on the gamecube is like mm-hmm. one of my top five games of all time nice i'm yeah. i'm looking forward to fantasy star online 2 more than you could possibly imagine. <laughs> oh, that, that, that's good yeah i was i was gonna ask because I, I i know you sort of have mixed feelings about sort of online centric games and mmos yeah. and that sort of thing but fantasy star only isn't really an mmo it's no more that's just that's like the third thing. person diablo yes which is yes. amazing it's like what if diablo played like devil may cry oh okay <laughs> like it's the shit yeah did you ha- ever have a chance to play um, that Southeast Asian version that was temporarily open to the world for those two blissful days, like a couple of years back? Yes, for those two blissful days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so so you've you've actually had a go at it, and yeah, yeah, it, I've yeah, played it in Japanese too. <laughs> like, oh, fair I, enough. I, yeah, like just muddled through it, like as much as I could using like proxies mm-hmm. and stuff. Yeah, but. yeah. No, it, it's it's good. It's good. I, I'm I'm definitely going to give it a go when uh, when it launches properly, um, just because it, I mean it's it's a beautiful looking game. Uh, you can make wonderful wonderful characters with it, uh, including cute android girls with lightsabers. Which yeah. I, as I recall, you had a little song about a few episodes back. But uh. <laughs> yeah, I tend I tend to sing about cute robot girls. Um, <laughs> But, so, it's still quite unclear whether or not we're going to be getting the PS4 version ever. Yeah, no, this uh, this is what I was saying a minute ago. Um, the At the moment, uh, the only confirmed versions we got for the West are Xbox One and PC, uh, which I, th- I think is something to do with like some sort of uh, ex- exclusivity they presumably negotiated with Microsoft at some point. Sure. Uh, but the Silicon Era story says that um, it's supposedly going to end up on all platforms and apparently this 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 comes straight from the mouth of phil spencer so mm. supposedly it will end up on everything because um, i'll play it on steam but I, I want this on ps4 i want this uh-huh. on my tv on my couch like i i want it on ps4 yeah yeah the question yeah. is will characters be cross-platform like if i started on steam because i can't wait will i be able to log in on the ps4 like fantasy i mean final fantasy 14 style yeah they would be foolish not to do that i think um and i think there's a good chance that they will do that because um sort of cross-play and stuff has become a much bigger deal for microsoft in particular uh, mm-hmm. over the last uh year or two probably uh, Microsoft have really sort of uh, kind of led the way in that in that regard, um, and it's it's sort of uh, filtering over to other platforms as well. So hopefully, yeah, you'll be able to pick up a play or whatever. All right, moving on. So um, Netflix has confirmed that there is a third season of Castlevania, and it is coming on March the fifth of twenty twenty. It's going to be made up of ten episodes. Um, yeah, so season two had eight, season one had four. So yeah, they're gradually expanding this as it goes on. So that's cool. Um, yeah. I can't believe how soon it is. Uh-huh. I can't believe how soon it is. It's unbelievable. It's so good. Castlevania is so good. <laughs> I, I still haven't watched it, I must confess. Oh, I still what haven't are you watched doing it. with your life? You need I, to watch it. It's so good. I'm playing video games is what I'm doing with my life. <laughs> yeah. This is also video game related. Yes, yes, I know. I know. I don't. And especially, I, and especially, thanks to the Castlevania collections and your and your recent, recently found love of 
Castlevania Three. Yes, yes, I know. Oh, I don't. I don't have a oh, good excuse, really. I don't have a no. good excuse, really. Watch some anime every now and then. Yes. All right. I'll, I'll do that at some point. <clears throat> anyway. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Continuing on. Um, the wonderful one hundred and one is back, um, and uh, it is. This is part of um, a, a broader project that Platinum teased recently. Uh, and then subsequently partially revealed. So Platinum Games launched a site uh, with the teaser with like a number four on it. Uh, and so there was all sorts of speculation on what this might be. Is it going to be four new games? Is it going to be Drake and Guard 4? Probably not. Um, it'll be nice, but probably not. There's still hope. <laughs> There's still hope. There is still hope, but you know. Um, but yeah, yeah it, the, it was subsequently revealed that this is four things that Platinum Games are working on. Um, and the first of which is um, they want to remaster The Wonderful 101, which, for the unfamiliar, was a really interesting and strange game for Wii U originally, where you control uh, basically like a big band of heroes. And it's uh, a ridiculous over-the-top action game in pure platinum style, uh, but you're controlling like these, these different types of heroes and they have different colours and different special abilities and stuff. And the original one used sort of um, gestural controls on the touchscreen of the gamepad, um, so it'll be interesting to see how that's going to port to other platforms, but presumably button combinations. Um, but yeah, this this was a really cool game that I, I haven't played nearly enough of on the Wii U. Um, I bounced off it hard because I mm. hate the touchscreen controls. Yeah, so fair enough. I can't wait to see have this on the PS4, like reimagined and attractive. And yeah, I just can't. Have yeah. you looked at like the, where where the Kickstarter's at? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I was, I was so, going to say. So, so, so the the interesting thing about <laughs> the interesting thing about this project is that they they are crowdfunding it, um, which um, surprised a few people because uh, Platinum Games just had a, a, a quite a significant investment from Tencent from China, and so people are going, well, why why do you why do you need to do crowdfunding for that? And some, I've seen some people get quite angry about this, but from what I understand. The reasoning behind it is that the the ten cent investment was um, on the condition that they were sort of developing new IPs and new things. Uh, whereas this this is something that uh, people have wanted for a while, and I think Platinum have wanted to do this for a while as well. But they, for various circumstances and various reasons, they haven't been able to do that. So, like, much like when crowdfunding first started and Kickstarter first got off the ground, and its big success stories were um, game developers being able to do things that they were not able to do within the standard confines of the publisher structure this is exactly the same thing this is platinum wanting to take one of their uh, one of their past games uh, self-publish it and bring it to a wider audience which is super cool and yeah yeah so uh, at the time of recording um the original kickstarter goal uh was five million four hundred twenty-five thousand yen which is about thirty-eight thousand three hundred fifty-six pounds. Uh, currently, <laughs> and as I'm looking at it, it just went up a bit. <laughs> yeah, I just, just saw it too. <laughs> currently, it is at one hundred and sixty-two million eighty-eight thousand two hundred forty-two yen, uh, which is equivalent to one million one hundred forty-six thousand and twenty-eight pounds. Uh, perhaps you can provide us with what that is in dollars at the moment. Yeah. So the uh, U.S. dollars, it would have been about fifty thousand dollars goal, mm-hmm. and it's now at one point five million. Yeah. Yeah. It's insane. Um, 
And so much of this was um, sort of within like the first hour of this Kickstarter being up. People were like, holy shit, wonderful 101. Yes, I want this. And like they yeah. smashed through enough of their stretch goals to get things like the Switch version, the Steam version, the PS4 version, the new Time Attack mode. Um, so they've still got some stretch goals left to go. They need to get to one and a half million uh, for uh, to add a 2D side-scrolling adventure with a young version of a, a hero from the game. And they need to get to $1.75 million for a remix soundtrack featuring a secret special guest. And uh, the stretch goals are sort of faded off at the moment, suggesting that there might be some more at some point as well. But, um, yeah. I mean, yeah. we're at 1.4 mil usd right now yeah it's gonna it's gonna clear 1.5 by the end of the weekend yeah yeah um with 27 days to go. <laughs> <laughs> what's it, what must it be like to work at platinum like to just know how loved you are yeah like you know it's like i imagine many development houses feel a constant state of worry whether or not their games are wanted whether or not they're loved but if you work at platinum yeah it's just like this must feel amazing yeah to see, like i can't imagine <laughs> it just ticked up again um yeah it's so good to this outpouring of support and love for platinum's games and their design philosophy i mean just treat this kickstarter like a pre-order program yeah yeah you know i'm in i'm in for the 60 dollar game with soundtrack physical copy like mm-hmm. <laughs> the end like it's awesome yeah do it yeah 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 so um yeah this is cool and i i, I love the rewards on this as well it's like it, oh it, they're great they're it, great it's like besides the usual stuff that you might expect like physical rewards and uh soundtrack cds and sort of extra little bits and pieces and so on uh if you pledge uh more than eleven thousand yen which is about 78 pounds uh you get blocked on twitter by uh hideki kamiya uh, having been shout- shouted at by him, he will shout at you publicly and then block you. Um, <laughs> and they, they take great pains to point out on the Kickstarter page that the, this is completely optional and you don't have to have this if you don't want it. But uh, yeah, re- realistically, people people are going to want that attention. And I think I read somewhere that one of the stretch goal. Oh, oh no, it's the it's the social media goal. If the the social media goal um, gets to the highest level, uh, Camille will unblock everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, delightful yeah so um yeah interested to try this like i said i don't have a ton of experience of the wii u version i, I didn't bounce off it because I, di- I didn't like the touchscreen controls or anything I, d- I just haven't really got around to playing it but uh i do own a copy but i yeah i might pick up a uh one of these uh remastered ones for sure just to sort of show platinum a bit of love mm-hmm oh, also right. while we're on the topic of mm. kickstarter can i just plug battle axe oh yes yes yeah, so there is currently a Kickstarter running for a game called Battle Axe, uh, which is like a almost like a gauntlet style overhead beat 'em up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it is by I'm, I'm going to butcher this name, but Hank Nieborg, mm-hmm. who is an artist who has worked previously with WayForward on the Shantae series. Yes, um, and this game is drop dead gorgeous it is described as a sumptuous pixel art arcade adventure like it is really cool um and i I highly recommend people check it out it's got 19 days to go it's now about thirteen thousand dollars short of its goal there is goals for physical copies like this really needs to exist it is so cool yeah 
Manami Matsume is working on the soundtrack, who mm-hmm. uh, did like Capcom in its heyday, <clears throat> right? Yes. Like a lot of yeah. Mega Man titles, Final Fight, Magic Sword. Also helped on Shovel Knight and um, what was that other game that was Meg- by the Mega Man guy? Oh, Mighty Number no. Nine. Like she's great. Mm-hmm. Um, like this really needs to happen. Um, Hank Nieborg's work is absolutely like iconic in the, the modern pixel art sphere. So let's let's make his baby happen. Mm, yeah, definitely. All right. Uh, continuing on, uh, a game called Below is coming to PlayStation Four. Um, just looking up on this because I, I, this is one of those games that I've heard the name of, but I haven't really looked into it before. Um, this is like a procedurally generated kind of survival hack and slash type game from the look of things. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah. So the, the PS4 version is uh, going to be adding a mode called Explore Mode as well, uh, which is basically a slightly easier mode. But rather than just being like your standard easy mode that makes um, sort of enemies a bit weaker or whatever, it's actually got some slight changes to the core rules of the game. So in the standard mode of the game, you have to manage hunger and thirst as part of the survival mechanics. Um, there's traps that will instantly kill you. Um, and there's um, sort of checkpoints aren't permanent in that mode and what the explore mode provides is that it takes out the hunger and thirst mechanics uh, it takes out the instant kills from traps and damage um, and means that damage um, is over time rather than immediate so it'd be, yeah, it's supposed to sort of simulate bleeding or something like that and give you the opportunity to recover uh, and uh, like I say these these checkpoints are permanent so even after you die you can p- continue from the same checkpoints that you've uh, you've had previously so the original survival mode will be there and it's they call it it's pure untouched form uh, which is cool um, but for those who want a slightly more friendly experience you've got that there as well so so I posted this as a point of interest for a couple reasons uh, first and foremost because this is by Capybara Mm-hmm. which is a developer I have a ton of respect for. Um, they did uh, that amazing Might and Magic puzzle game. Yes, I was going to say that. Might and Magic Clash of Heroes. That's such yeah. a great game. Such a great game that no one ever talks about. And yeah. uh, thinking about it now, I've never written about it. I should probably correct that at some point. It's <laughs> an incredible game. They did that. They did Critter Crunch, which was another great puzzler. Um, I believe they also did... Um, Super Time Force, I think that was them, mm-hmm. which is a really great side scroller with a really cool time reversal mechanic. They yeah. make really neat games. And when the original, wait, if we can dial things back a couple years to the announcement of the Xbox One mm-hmm. during their sizzle reel, this was one of their like big things, right? Like, on the Xbox One, it was like, look, we got this exclusive game from Capybara. Like, this is this is. This is the proof that we're supporting artistic, independent development. Mm-hmm. Like, we've got this exclusive game from Capybara on our system. Um, and so for years, I've wanted to play this because it was Xbox One exclusive. Mm-hmm. And now it is not. Cool. So I'm very excited. It has a very unique artistic presentation to it. Really gorgeous play with like light and shadow. Mm. It's, yeah, I can't wait. Yeah. Yeah, it looks cool. Sounds cool. Like I say, I've not come across this before, but yeah, Capybara, the, the the stuff that I have played of their stuff previously has been excellent. So, and and yeah, Might and Magic Classic Heroes is um, fantastic. 
absolutely fantastic. So yes, I'm going to have to dig that out and write about it this week now. Now I've mentioned it. <laughs> right, uh, moving on. Uh, Atlas has put out a survey uh, gauging interest in Switch ports of their past games, uh, including Persona and... Um, did they actually mentioned any other Mega Ten stuff as well? Oh, yes, oh yeah. they, yes, they have. Yes, they have. So it's not just Persona games. So, like, most of the news stories reporting on this have focused on Persona, but, um, yeah, they, they did also mention Shin Megami Tensei Nocturne, Shin Megami Tensei 4, and Shin Megami Tensei 4 Apocalypse, uh, Devil Southerner, Soul Hackers, and the Raido Kusanara games. Oh, uh, and then, shit. as well as that, they also mentioned Etrian Odyssey, uh, Vanillaware titles, uh, including 13 Sentinels Aegis Rim. Uh, Dragon's Crown Pro and Odin Sphere lived us here. And um, <laughs> so, some miscellaneous games like Digital Devil Saga, Avatar Tuner, and Catherine Fullbody as well. So um, I should emphasize at this point that a survey does not mean they're going to make these games. It does not mean they are necessarily going to port these games, but they are investigating whether or not people are interested in them, which is a significant start. So. All I have wanted for so many years was to have Persona 3 portable on a form that I can play on my television conveniently. <laughs> because I hate the original Persona 3 because you can't control your party. Mm -hmm. But like from a perspective of characters and setting, Persona 3 is my favorite Persona. Yeah. So like I want to replay it so bad, but not on my PlayStation Portable. Mm -hmm. Like it's like what it would do to have four golden and three portable on the Switch. Yeah. Like, unbelievable. And mm -hmm. so, everybody get up in this survey. Yeah. Except for it's in Japanese, right? So, I guess, <laughs> I guess not, but... Where there's a will, there's a way. <laughs> uh, uh, I yes. I these games. The Ryder yeah. Kusanoa series, my god. Yeah, it, it'd be great to see some of these remastered. And and again, these these are games that I don't necessarily need them to do anything fancy with. They If they just port them and just make them run in HD, maybe at a better frame rate, but they don't need to upgrade the graphics or anything. Just no. put, them on, put them on the eShop for like $15 or something like that. I'll be happy with that. I mean, I'd be happier if they did a physical release of them, obviously. But oh yeah, um, no. Let's let's not let's not miss one. Yeah. I won't be happy unless there's a physical <laughs> release. Of, I definitely, I definitely need to buy Persona Three for a fourth time. <laughs> I, de I definitely. <laughs> oh God, yeah. <sighs> right. Um, last thing we got for today, then uh, Onichanbara Origin. Um, is uh getting an asian release and this has a it has english language options so those who are wanting to play this and um can't wait basically uh, you can get the asia english version so this is a remake of the first two games um that were originally on ps2 which were called yeah. something different over here they, they would they just had really generic titles like i think it was like zombie zone or something like that oh really see the I don't know what one we got in, in over here. We got one on the Wii and the 360 in, yeah. in the States, and, it, and they called it Bikini Samurai Squad in the States. Yeah. Well, it, it, the thing is, there's, there's loads of them. There, there are yeah. loads of these games. So, like, the original one came out on PS2 as part of the Simple series, uh, and that was just that was just called The Onichan Barra. Uh, then there was the Onichan Puru, the Onichan Special Chapter, the Onichan Bower 2, Onichampon, Onichan 2 Special Chapter. 
the one on Xbox looks like it was the fifth game. Yeah, okay. Um, the one on the Wii was the sixth game. Uh, then there was one on PS4 a couple of years back that we did yeah. get over here. Yeah. Um, yeah, so... Hmm. <laughs> yeah, this is a confusing series. So yeah, the so the one we got in English wasn't even like remotely related to the earlier ones. Um, oh, or did co- you get oh, one? Of co- yeah, in, I was gonna say. I was in, gonna say. You, yeah, the sim- simple series you didn't get. Like you didn't get those in the states, did you? That's that's correct. So but, B- yeah. Bikini Samurai Squad and the 360 and the Wii were the first ones to come stateside. Yes. No. Uh, no. I'd, I'd completely forgotten about that fact. But yeah, yeah, we got a bunch of the simple series games in um, Europe, which That's right, di- which did. did not come out in the states. Um, so I'm just looking up which one it is. But yeah, we definitely got at least one of the Oni Chanbara games. Uh, so we got uh, we got the Oni Champlu, the Nechan Toketsuban, which I think is the second one. Yes. So we we got the second game and the third game. Um, <laughs> which was uh, so the second game is called Zombie Hunters over here, and the third game uh, is called the Sister Sword Fighter. Oh no, 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 that didn't come out in Europe. There's another one somewhere. Where is it? Oh, it was just Zombie Hunters Two over here. But that oh, one, okay. that one is actually the fourth one. So we got the second one and the fourth one over here in Europe. Okay. Um, but they were just called Zombie Hunters and Zombie Hunters 2. Just to confuse matters. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. So, um, basically, um, Oni Chanbara Origin is a remake of the first two, from the look of things. Um, and this is also the first time there's been a Chinese localization. Probably not relevant to a lot of people listening to that, but whatever um but the yeah there, there is there is an english there is an english uh, localization in this version and that's coming in summer of this year from what i understand it's even going to have english voiceovers oh cool yeah i read that in a different article but so yeah this, this is a fun series so it's, mm-hmm. it's just cool that we're going to be able to get it in english yeah because i'm sure we're not going to get it like i'm sure there's not going to be an actual western release of this mm-hmm I mean, unless unless someone has mentioned it, and I just didn't notice it in any of the news outlets anywhere. But I, I don't think the last one did particularly well, and mm. given the current environment, I highly yeah. doubt. Yeah, no, I've not, I've not seen anything about it. If if it comes from anywhere, it, it will it will be uh, Nice America, I think. But they've not said anything about it, so or Xseed, right? Xseed did the last one. Did they? Yeah. Oh, did, oh, did, did Nisa just distribute it? Because I definitely got a copy via Nisa Europe, but may, maybe they. Maybe oh, well, yeah, it, yeah, but in the States it was XC. Ah, fair so. enough. Okay, right. Uh, I think that's all the stories we had noted. Was there anything else you want to bring up before we move on? No, that's good. That's a lot more than we expected, as per usual. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, well, when you take a month off, that's, uh, that's what you get. <laughs> all right, so let's take a short break now. I can go and have a coughing fit, uh, and then we'll come back and we'll talk about what we've been playing recently. So, see you in a moment.
Welcome back. For our second segment, we're going to be talking about what we've been playing recently and perhaps not so recently as well. So, what have you been up to, Chris? <laughs> uh, the past month of my life has been consumed by uh, Nipponichi's Destiny Connect. Ah, yes. Let's hear it. Which I'm absolutely loving. Cool. Um, and it won't surprise you because everyone else hated it, right? Like, it got like, <laughs> it got, like savaged. Like, I haven't seen a review for it above a seven. Um, but it's just a classic example of, like, appreciating a game on its own merits. So, um, Destiny Connect is a clunky, low-budget mess. Mm -hmm. And I love it. <laughs> yep. So, um, the Switch version runs like shit. Looks mm -hmm. like it's, like, smeared with Vaseline. It's, like, hard to look at. <laughs> um, but it's just so endearing. Like, this is clearly just an example of, like, someone had an idea for a new IP, which, once again, new IPs are to be celebrated. Mm -hmm. um, someone had an idea for a new IP and just tried to make this thing on a shoestring budget. Yep. Um... It uses the Unreal Engine, which does not run well on the Switch. <laughs> um, because it uses the Unreal Engine, like, the camera's a little wonky, the movement's a little wonky. Like, yes, you have to get used to playing it. Like, the, the first area, like, the house you start the game in, it's like, I was straight up getting, like, motion sick, trying to, like, pan the camera around. Like, <laughs> once you realize that it's one of those games, and this is something that happens often with Unreal Engine games, you're not really supposed to analog control your character. You're kind of supposed to walk forward and then pan the camera where you want to walk to. Yeah. yeah. Does that make any sense? Because it's yeah, yeah, a, no, a holdover yeah. from the fact that the Unreal Engine is initially designed to run first-person shooters. Yes. Yeah. So it takes a lot of it takes a lot of programming work to get around that, um, which not everyone who uses the Unreal Engine realizes. So it takes a little bit to realize how to really control Destiny Connect. Um. But otherwise, it's just a really delightful, charming JRPG in a way that, like, rarely gets made anymore. Which I'm is, sorry. I know I'm sorry. A, a what? I'm sorry. A turn-based <laughs> role-playing game. Um, a turn-based role-playing game in a style that really doesn't get made very often anymore, which is to say, like, you're just a plucky group of kids on an adventure. Yeah. Um. Like, there's no brooding teenagers and no hefty romantic subplots and everything's just really cute. And mm -hmm. <laughs> so you're just like, yeah. kids, it almost feels a bit like a playable, like, Pixar movie. Or mm -hmm. I would yeah. compare it almost to a, a Leica film. Mm -hmm. um, they just, you're this adorable, like, plucky girl and her nerdy, but cowardly best friend and the robot that her dad built who is also a time machine and you're going on an adventure to try to save everybody from household appliances that have become sentient and gone haywire. <laughs> um, and it's just really cute. And you, there's a heavy time travel element. Um, so like, as you go throughout the game, you, you go, you're going to the past to try to like undo the bad things that have happened and you go back to the present and then you have to deal with like the butterfly effect repercussions of like the things you did in the past. Then you go all the way to the future and you meet a strange lady who's definitely not future you. Oh wait, she definitely is. <laughs> um, like, like so far my party consists of me, my best friend, the robot my dad built my dad from 30 years ago as a child <laughs> and my son from 30 years in the future. 
Nice. It's really, really cool. It's it's a lot of fun. Um, and it's very simple. So, like, when you play it, you have to kind of engage with it on its own terms and understand that, like, almost like Final Fantasy Mystic Quest, like, it was very much designed to be, like, a my first RPG. Okay. Real, so the, com- the the mechanics are extremely simple. It's not really challenging, but it's also just nice to have a very classic turn-based three-player party role-playing game to play. Yeah, yeah. Um, the big mechanical like hook up is that your robot is like the key to your party, and if the robot dies, it's game over. Like the kids oh, okay. can the yeah. kids can get knocked out and get revived, but if the robot dies, it's game over. Um, because the robot's the time machine. So yeah. if he gets knocked out, you can't you can't come back to the present ever. Yeah. Um, the robot, as you progress through the game, you find gears that give him different forms. And the forms essentially allow him to change job classes mid-battle. Okay. So, like, he starts in guardian form, which is just a like classic tank. But then the next form you get is, uh, like a cool firefighter, like, form for him that allows him to strip buffs off of enemies yeah. and heal, and heal. So it's a bit of like a, like a white mage kind of thing. Then the mm-hmm. next thing you get is outlaw form, which is a cowboy outfit for him. And that has like, like, it's like the thief. So like you can steal, mo- you can steal money. You can, you have a move that if you use it increases the drop rates at the end of battle. So like allows okay. you to manipulate like the rewards you receive from fights. So it's a great form to use when you're grinding because you can increase yeah. experience, money or drops. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, I, there's a boxer form, which is basically like a ninja form where it's like, there's a lot of like speed and dodge related buffs that you have to try to play with. Um, there's two more that I haven't unlocked yet, but I think one of them's a samurai based on like some of the abilities I can see. Because you can see the grid for all the forms, even though you haven't earned them yet. So I'm thinking right. it's like a samurai form. And I think the last one's a chef, and I just remember <laughs> that from seeing pictures yeah. online of it. But uh, it, it's, it's, really, it's really fun. Mm-hmm. Um, the robot levels up differently than the other characters do because he can't get equipment. Yeah. Um, so like the way you make him more powerful he levels up and gets general stats as he levels up but he can't be equipped with equipment um so what you do for him is you get uh parts that are dropped by the enemies you take down then you have to go to shops to build gears and then like you plug them in to like he has a grid with like you know you can't unlock one ability to unlock the one before it and then you you work through this grid to unlock his different stat boosts and skills and then there's different qualities of parts you can build silver uh bronze silver or gold parts so like as the game progresses you're not only unlocking new abilities but rebuilding the parts to swap them out for higher quality parts later to get better stat boosts so it's it's, if you're like a grinder like me it's a lot of fun Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm just just really enjoying it. Um, like like I said, the low budget nature of it's really very, um, very really very clear. Um, because of the time travel, like you just spend, end up exploring the town like over and over and over in like different eras. Like there's not actually many environments at all. I'm like 12 hours deep into it, and I've really only seen like three environments because I just keep going back to them in like different eras. Right. Um, and there's like not a ton of enemies. It's just a lot of recolors with like <clears throat> expanded stats. Like this game was made on the, on the cheap, but like it's yeah. just so charming and cute. 
Mm-hmm. And and like I said, it, it, it feels very old school in like a Super Nintendo way. Oh, sounds and, great. And it's really just scratching the right itch right now. Nice. Good. Yeah, I'm glad you're enjoying that. I, I, I know you were looking forward to that. I've, I've got that on my shelf as well. I don't know when I'll, when I'll get to it. But um, yeah, it's, it, it's always looked really charming. So yeah, I'm glad it's sort of living up to expectations or, or at least providing something that you you want to spend some time with. So. It's cool. cozy. It's a really cozy game. So I, I'm yeah. just kind of appreciating that right now. That's what you want sometimes, isn't it? You yeah, just want cause... something you can you can relax with and not have to think too hard about. You can just let it wash over you and enjoy it. So yeah, cool. Yeah, I mean it's <clears> clearly <throat> for children, but I also don't care. <laughs> who gives a shit, man? If it's fun, if you enjoy it, it it doesn't matter who it's for. That's right. It's yeah. for me. If I'm enjoying it, it's yeah. for me. <laughs> like... Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. All right, cool. Anything else you've been up to then? Uh, not anything I could speak to in as much detail. I'll save. Okay. I'll save it for the next episode. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. Um. So, uh, those of you who are following MoeGame.net will know that at the time of recording, uh, I've just finished the first cover game feature of 2020, which was the visual novel Lamination, which was a lot of fun. Uh, so be sure to check that out if you want an absolutely ridiculous, bizarre non-secretary of a visual novel <laughs> that was uh, tons of fun but my next uh, my next project is a a big one uh which is uh the atelier mega feature uh, which bum, is bum. yeah which is covering a whole shitload of atelier games over the course of the next however long it takes um before i started on that then i i wanted to take the opportunity to sort of play through a few sort of smaller games um and as, as it happened i i there are a couple that I had review copies of um, that I wanted to make sure I covered uh, before I got too stuck into anything else, and a few things that I've sort of returned to over time. So I just want to sort of mention a few little things that I've I've looked at, and I've I've written about these recently and made some videos about some of these recently as well. But I, I think it's worth talking about them now as well. So uh, first one I want to mention is uh, Coffee Talk, which oh, is yeah. um, so this is a uh, a narrative game from an Indonesian developer called Toge Productions. Um, they were previously known for more sort of mechanic-centric games. Um, they did a series called Infectionator, which I think I've heard of before, but I've never actually played myself. I think it started as a Flash game series, but then subsequently became sort of much bigger. They've been re- been around since about 2009, apparently, So, but, and just sort of quietly doing things that people have been enjoying over the last years. But... Um, this is quite interesting to me because like you mentioned with uh, Little Town Hero earlier and Game Freak's kind of culture of doing internal game jams and that sort of thing, that's exactly how this game was produced as well. So they did an internal game jam in December of 2017 and uh, the guy who does uh, the guy who did, I think he's moved on now, but uh, the guy who did the PR for them um, he he wanted to make a game that kind of recreated the comfy feeling you had from having a nice hot drink, stepping away from everything you're supposed to be doing, and just sort of chilling out with a nice cup of coffee or something like that. And he he wanted to he wanted to recreate that feeling in a game, and he kind of fleshed that out over the course of this game jam, and came up uh, with this narrative game where you you run a coffee shop in late night Seattle. Uh, but it's sort of Shadowrun style, late night Seattle, uh, mm. and so Seattle is populated by orcs and uh, werewolves and vampires and elves and all that sort of thing. Um, and yeah, it's just a really cool game. Um, if you enjoyed stuff like VA11 Hall A Valhalla, 
um, the the cyberpunk bartending game. It's it's very heavily based on that, and in fact, they sort of consulted with uh, the developers of that during their development because uh, they were. And I've covered all this in in my article about it, but they were sort of concerned that they weren't making enough of a game. Um, but the guys behind Valhalla basically went, "Don't worry about it. We 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 had the same concerns. We made." what we wanted to make and the people who enjoyed it really enjoyed it so it's, it's what we've been, what we've been saying it's coming to coming to an experience on its own terms enjoying it for what it is not what it isn't and from a developer's perspective it's a case of designing your game in that way sort of designing a game to be what you want it to be rather than trying to shoehorn something in and if that that may well mean that it, it's not necessarily going to appeal to everyone like I know, for example, that this this game probably won't appeal to you, for example, because you prefer games that have a bit more in the way of mechanics and things to do and that sort of thing. But by doing that, the developers are being truer to their original vision, and in the process, they're going to attract an audience that respects and understands that vision as well. And it's it's just a game that I really, really respect because they obviously had a clear creative vision for what they wanted to achieve and they have absolutely nailed it with that game it's beautiful it's absolutely beautiful yeah i mean i, I watched your video on it and i was just kind of spellbound by uh, obviously the presentation and kind of what it's trying to do and kind of inspired by that kind of story of them uh, being encouraged to make the game they want to make because like mm -hmm. the the purest vision of what you want to do is what you should always be making right that's the only way to yeah. be successful don't make a compromised product yeah yeah and that's the sort of thing that's only sort of really possible when you're doing something independently like that wouldn't have been possible if they were working under a larger publisher or something like that and that's the real strength of independent development and they're taking full advantage of that so so that, that's great and I'm, I'm glad it's been successful for them as well because it's had really great reviews there's been a lot of people talking about it online i've seen loads of fan art i've seen loads of shipping of the vampire and the werewolf character who everyone has decided are gay despite there being no indication of that in the game itself but you know huh, they're a vampire. when people when people when people see cute boys sitting together you know how you know how things are how the internet um, works <laughs> But yeah, yeah, it's it's a cool game. I was I was really impressed with that. I was I wasn't sure what to expect because I, I I'd seen sort of the early screenshots and stuff and thought, oh, that looks nice, but I wasn't sure if it was going to feel like a Valhalla ripoff, and and it doesn't. It it makes itself distinct. Um, sort of the the vibe is different. The focus of the story is a bit different. But yeah, again, that was a nice, relaxing, comfy game that I really enjoyed. Okay um next one i want to mention again I've, I've written about this and made a video on it recently but again i want to mention it again uh which is 1980x oh yeah so I remember you telling me about that yeah 1980x is is really interesting to me I, I sort of vaguely passively heard about it um now and then i think i'd seen it on the on the eShop um as i was scrolling past because the the pc version came out quite a while back now i think um but the the switch version launched like a week ago or something like that sure and i happened to be um at home visiting my parents and my my brother was across from the states so i was at home visiting my parents and he was there and it was an opportunity for the whole family to get together and so on so and i'd taken my switch with me as i take it everywhere these days and um my brother happened to mention oh have you seen this game 1980x and i said no and he 
he sort of said that, that he'd heard about it and it was supposed to be really cool and so on. And it turns out that someone he used to work with on uh, Electronic Gaming Monthly is on the translation team and so on. So that's how he had ended up hearing about it. Um, but I saw it in the eShop and it was like eight quid or something like that. So I downloaded it and I thought, oh, I'll give this a go. And um, it's a fantastic experience. Again, it's it's something you kind of have to approach on its own terms. And that's kind of difficult with this one because it, it kind of subverts itself in some ways. Okay. Because it's it's kind of marketed on the nostalgia for old arcade games. So the premise of the premise of nineteen eighty X is or like right, look, there's these there's these five awesome arcade games that we've they're not recreated, so they're not ports of anything. They are loving homages to specific types of arcade games so there's an homage to the scrolling beat-em-up which we'll be talking about later uh there's an homage to sort of r-type and gradius there's uh, an homage to the vanishing point racer uh there is an homage to sort of platforming hack and slash sort of vaguely shinobi style gameplay uh, and then finally there's a first person dungeon crawler um but the point of the game is not those games. Those games are fleshed out nicely and they're mechanically very solid. They're presented beautifully. They use this sort of enhanced retro concept that we've talked about before where they look like how you would like to remember games from that era looking, but they didn't actually look like that. Um, and they're, they're beautiful. They're beautiful, absolutely fantastic little games in their own right. But they are not the point of 1980X. The point of 1980X is its story. And 1980X is basically an hour-long film uh presented in pixel art with a lovely soundtrack in which these arcade games crop up at various relevant moments in the story and they they tend to be quite symbolic in many ways and at the time of recording um the, the story isn't finished the the intention from the beginning was always for it to be a two-part game with the first part sort of introducing the setting and the concepts and so on and then the story reaching its conclusion in the second part and they haven't made the second half yet but it's fully funded and everything the whole thing was a kickstarter project but they they wanted to release this first episode first of all so people can kind of get into um what the game's all about get a feel for it um understand what they're trying to achieve with it and that sort of thing and although it's for some people it's a bit frustrating that it, it kind of stops relatively abruptly at the end with a with a to be continued in some ways the fact that the story isn't finished is is quite interesting because it encourages you to think about it and to think back over what you've just seen maybe to play it again because it's only an hour long in total and to sort of look for things look for clues about what it's actually about and there are lots of little things in the game that you could interpret in different ways and it's it's just really interestingly put together in that way it's 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 a game that has genuinely been designed as both a work of art and a game that is mechanically solid as well so the the, the artistic side of things is in the presentation and the story and the message it's trying to convey but the interactive components of the game are clearly designed by people who know what they are doing with game design as well so can and you so, play the games? Yes, like, yes, when, yes. When you, you can. want to, and are they are they like how fleshed out are they? Like how much game it, it, is there to the games? Um, in in most cases, it's like um, it's like a level. Okay. So, for example, the the story starts with the opening cutscene from the beat 'em up game, 
and you get the you get the intro sequence and then you get the first level which is fighting through sort of some city streets and then eventually you're fighting up towards um there's this there's like the end point of the level is is a hospital which i think is one of the things that is is, is symbolic and um what happens towards the end of that level is that there's there's a character sitting up on a wall and he jumps down and obviously starts fighting you but the camera pans up at that point so you can sort of hear things that are still going on but you you it kind of moves on with the story at that point okay but then um then there's then there's some hands-off story sequences that are sort of introducing like the main character and the setting and that sort of thing and like the whole the the the, the sort of main concept of it is this um kind of a disaffected teenager who is going through a turbulent time in their life um they they're not explicit about what the actual issue is but it's something to do with his father his father is either dead or absent or something terrible has happened um and this kid finds meaning in video games and so like um after this first sequence he finds his way to this grotty old rundown arcade in the middle of nowhere and he goes down there and they discover that there's other misfits who don't sort of fit in society there they're all playing games they're all chatting they're they're all finding some sort of meaning from this shared experience there and they decide that they want to see if they can fit in they want to see if they can find meaning from this and at that point they decide to play the space game they decide to play the shoot 'em up and and then you play the shoot 'em up so you play through a whole level of the shoot 'em up you go from the start through to the boss you beat the boss once you've done that then the story moves on and so on so it's basically structured like that okay um but there are a few instances throughout where kind of the story start of crosses over with the games as well so for example when you're playing the vanishing point racer bit um the first part of that is as you would expect so you're sort of racing you're reaching checkpoints you're trying to reach the checkpoints before the timer runs out towards the end of that sequence uh you go into a long tunnel and when you come out the tunnel the checkpoint you hit there it sends your timer up to like a ridiculously high level so like instead of just like giving you an extra minute on the clock or something like that it gives you like an extra 240 seconds or something like that and as you're playing this section where the timer has gone up to that part um the 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 protagonist is starting to give a speech while you're still playing that game and it's a speech about what this game means to him and how he's sort of found meaning from these experiences that, that he is in control of um and that sort of thing but then towards the end of it as your time is running out in the game he is starting to talk about always having to come back to reality and things bringing him crashing down to reality and that sort of thing and that happens exactly as your time runs out in the game and it's just like a really beautifully scripted moment mm. and that sort of thing so yeah it's it's just a wonderfully presented game um again it's not going to be for everyone because like i say it's it kind of sells itself on one thing and then provides something different and not everyone is going to like that but it is just such a, an incredible work of art uh, it, it is it is a real really wonderful piece of interactive art that yeah re really deserves some some support i think and I, I i'd very much like to see where that's going from there yeah it sounds super interesting 
Mm. Also sounds like it lands super close to home. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Uh, Absolutely. Um, I mean, the. I mean, I won't spoil the details of the final sequence, but sort of the the last bit in the dungeon crawler. There's some there's some pretty real stuff going on there. <laughs> yeah, let's, 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 let's just say that. But yeah, it's yeah, it, it lands very close to home, and I'm sure it will do for a lot of people who are listening to this as well. So it's 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 worth experiencing if you're open to that kind of experience. Um, and I think the last thing I want to mention today then is um sort of a complete change of pace from that and actually a game that i've been enjoying in one form or another since 2013 i just looked up um which is a game i still don't know how to pronounce the name of um which is uh crawler i think is how you pronounce it uh which is spelled c-r-o-i-x-l-e-u-r it's definitely silent yeah um it's it's not a real word it's not a real word it just looks like a french word but it's not a real word um but yeah, if if you've not come across this game before, this was um, originally one of the relatively early Japanese doujin games that came west. Um, there was a company, I don't know if they still exist actually, but there was, there was a company called New Media a while back. I think they might have got absorbed into Playism at some mm-hmm. point. Play, Playism certainly seems to handle most of the stuff they used to do. Um, but this was one of their early releases. And I covered it back when I was working on a site called Games Are Evil that doesn't exist anymore. Um, but uh, yeah, this was originally released, and it was originally designed as an homage to uh, Devil May Cry's Bloody Palace mode. Um, so it's basically a string of monster arenas. So it's like a circular arena full of monsters. You have to defeat them as quickly as possible, and make your way through this entire sequence of levels as quickly as you can, defeating them as as quickly as you can. But over the course of the last I guess seven years at this point it's been developed and expanded and refined the version we have now is called crawler sigma and so the original game had just one playable character there's now four uh there's now collectible weapons that each have their own special abilities there's now multiple ways to play so as well as the original time story mode which is a kind of sort of arcade style experience uh, there's a score attack mode, there's a time attack mode, there's a survival mode, there's like uh, specific challenges to do and that sort of thing. And the game as it exists now is a really, really solid hack and slash game. Um, that's just a lot of fun to play. And I, I, I just picked up the Switch version recently because it was on sale. And I thought, oh, that'd be a good game to have on portable. Uh, and it is. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, it's, it's just a really fun game because it's 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 not overly complicated, but it, it but it can get quite technical. So the actual basic mechanics are very simple to understand. It's it's pretty much attack, move, and dash. And it's a game that's all about sort of canceling moves into other moves. So like you you do your combo, then you do a dash to cancel out of the um, sort of um, wind down animation from the combo, so you can keep yourself going as much as possible. And it's all about figuring out the best ways to defeat specific types of enemies as efficiently and quickly as possible and so in the in the basic story arcade mode you have a time limit of 15 minutes to get through the whole thing um it's that's way more than you need but in order to get the true ending you have to do the whole thing in less than 10 minutes so you need at least five minutes remaining on the clock when you beat the final boss to get the true ending uh, which is something I've not managed to do until this week. <laughs> so 
so I, I first played this game like I say back in 2013 and I've only just managed to sort of master it enough to be able to do this so there's a ton of replay value and staying power in this game it's a lot of fun it's got a really nice kind of arcade feel to it and so it's, it's it sort of uses a lot of um the kind of ideas that I would typically associate with like um, Sega games in particular so like big numbers on the screen and sort of big countdown timers and prominent score displays and everything you do kind of showers you with gold coins and there's things exploding and anime girls shouting and that sort of thing and it's just a a really one of those games that's just really pleasing to play like you play it and you just think I'm having a good time I'm enjoying this it's important yeah yeah and so, yeah, I've, I've just sort of, I've just sort of rediscovered that game recently. So, um, yeah, definitely worth worth looking at. I know that the the PC version uh, they re-released recently with uh, all of the new content that they added in the console versions. Oh. Okay. And so, as like all of the versions are now have sort of complete parity with each other, so there's no one sort of best version anymore. It runs brilliantly on Switch as well, so it it maintains a full 60 frames a second on Switch as well, so you don't need to worry about that being like the inferior version or anything like that it's just a really nice arcade game that i i enjoy playing a lot so i know limited run pressed that on the ps4 and vita so i've kind of been hoping that the switch version would get a similar treatment done yeah i'd i'd, I'd really like a package copy of this on on switch that'd be really good because it's like i say it's, it's been a game that i've sort of come back to every every couple of years or so since 2013 and i, I still really love it so go cool. Right, I think that's probably everything we want to talk about for now, aside from the things that are going to come up in our third segment. So we'll take a short break, and then we'll come back and we'll talk about beat-em-ups. So we'll see you in a moment. Welcome back. For our third segment, we wanted to talk about beat-em-ups. Now, we thought this would be a nice, simple, easy topic to talk about. And then Chris went and made three pages of notes for it. So uh, this may be a lengthy discussion. <laughs> um, but yeah, be beat-em-ups are a, a genre of game uh, that we both enjoy a great deal. Um, and they've kind of made a bit of a comeback recently. Yeah, there was quite a, quite, a, quite a period of time when beat-em-ups just, just weren't a thing. Um, but over sort of the last few years or so, they've been making a gradual resurgence, both in their original arcade forms and in the case of new games as well. So we thought it'd be interesting to talk a bit about the genre, what appeals about it to us, the bit of the history of it, our past experiences with it, and our more recent experiences with it as well. So I think um, so. probably a good place to start then, um, for those who are unfamiliar with uh, with sort of the definition of the genre um let's let's sort of nail down some some origins and some definitions of what a beat-em-up is then so to you then what is what is a beat-em-up what defines a beat-em-up uh well um beating up things. obviously yeah <laughs> um finding uh punching photo booths and finding roast beef <laughs> inside the photo booths um yep. And apples on plates inside of garbage cans. Mm -hmm, of course. Um, 
I mean, I, I specifically, I mean, there's kind of side-scrolling beat-em-ups and belt-scrolling beat-em-ups, and I kind of more associate the genre with the belt-scrolling beat-em-ups, which is to say right. the ones where you can walk not just left and right, but toward and back. Yes. De- depth. There's, there's layers of depth. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of more like what I think of. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, uh, there are obviously many glorious side-scrolling beat-em-ups as well. Um, the Ninja Warriors series and whatnot. But like yep. the, the big genre we talk about is always the belt-scrolling beat-em-ups. Um, so I, I specifically think about that kind of... I guess the best way to describe that field of motion as a ribbon with like that sense of yes. 3d space so like I, I very much associate that field of motion and forward and uh, backward movement to and from the camera it's really mm-hmm. just up and down like yep. in terms of the way it's actually being controlled but generally speaking the the stage design is always presented with an, a very specific kind of isometric appearance so that there's a yes. feeling of depth to that movement instead of up yes. and, instead of instead of verticality it's a feeling of depth yeah so it was it was kind of an early incarnation of what we tend to describe as two and a half d now isn't it yeah yeah in a um, lot of ways yeah so i mean the defining features that i i've kind of listed here are uh belt scrolling so you, you you're basically moving like you're on a conveyor belt so you move forward a bit you have to achieve something then you move forward a bit more you have to achieve something else you move forward a bit more and so on. but the main thing is you're sort of constantly moving forward that's yeah. that's one defining feature the second one i've put down is this two and a half d movement which you've, you've already covered there um the next one is uh combo attacks so uh the ability to press a button and have several things happen um now this this is one that you might not necessarily agree with immediately given the nature of some of the early games which i want to mention in just a moment before we move on to sort of some of our most defining experiences but um as the beat up exists today and as it is most commonly understood by people today um combo attacks tend to be a, a big part of that so sure they tend they tend to take the form of you press the button to attack and your character will throw a punch if that punch connects if you press the attack button again he will do a different punch if that punch connects you press it again he will do a different punch again and so on and depending on the beat up there may be sort of different strings of combos you can do with that so for a lot of people that is a defining part of the genre yeah certainly the most popular and the most well-known ones um, yeah and especially so, as the as the way Capcom came to kind of define them, yes. And along with that, we have a concept called hit stun, uh, mm, which is yes. where if that initial hit connects, you stun the enemy for a split second, and that provides you with the opportunity to unleash those additional moves. And for a lot of people, again, this is a really critical part of the genre because yes. it, it's 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 what allows that distinctive style of attacking it's what allows those combo attacks to happen and it's what provides a, a sort of tactile feeling to the experience as well it, it gives you a feeling of physicality like your attacks are actually connecting with things and that's I really would, important to to this sort of thing yeah i would add too the importance of hit stun is tantamount to another really important aspect of the genre as a whole which is like these games are essentially games about time and space management yes it's how you prioritize which enemies you attack in what sequence and play keep away and manage the space around you to keep it as safe as possible Mm -hmm. and like manipulating the timing of that hit stun is a really important tactic to doing that yes absolutely because in most cases what you can do is you can manipulate the arrangement of the enemies in such a way that one attack can stun multiple enemies at the same time 
and so it's often really important to do that in order to manage the the enemies that are around you at any given moment you have to sort of prioritize which are going to be the most dangerous targets and then perhaps try and take out some of the less dangerous targets at the same time as keeping the most dangerous one off your back um, and this this comes in with another thing as well, which is the fact that um, in most cases a beat em up means that you need multiple hits to defeat both the enemy and the player. Um, now again, this is something that is not necessarily present in the very origins of the genre as as commonly agreed. So let's talk a little bit about this before we move on to some of these key examples. So for a lot of people, if you look at sort of... Um, people tracking history of genre and that sort of thing most people will point to irem's kung fu as if not the first beat em up then the first game that was something approaching a beat em up mm -hmm. yeah now kung fu lacks a lot of these elements that we just described so kung fu um kung fu does have it does have this kind of constant forward progression it doesn't have two and a half d movement it's just a side scroller it doesn't have combo attacks. Um, it doesn't really have hits done. And in most cases, aside from the boss characters, it's just a single hit to defeat every enemy. You have two different moves in Kung Fu. You have a punch and a kick. But the only difference between them is their reach and how many points you score for using them. Um, and so, like I say, that is commonly regarded as sort of the origin of this genre but there's a lot of things that hadn't been introduced at all yet or hadn't been refined just yet now another early example that i want to bring up as well that is a little bit different um a, probably a slightly less well-known one um and this is the bruce lee game that was on the 8-bit computers oh yeah around the same time about this so bruce lee um the the game it's it was essentially a platform action adventure but what was noteworthy about it was um, a lot of platform games at the time didn't give you the ability to attack or if you could attack it was mostly sort of the the pac-man model where you'd like pick up an item and that would make you invincible for a short period and then you just run through enemies to destroy them what bruce lee did that i hadn't seen before at that time was it gave you the ability to attack so you had uh, you could press the fire button on the joystick to throw a punch or you could press the fire button on the joystick in a direction and he would do a flying kick and there were two antagonists in Bruce Lee who were constantly sort of chasing you throughout it. There was a ninja and there was a sumo wrestler called Yamo. And they would follow you around and try and attack you. And it would take multiple hits to defeat you in Bruce Lee. And it would take multiple hits to defeat these enemies in Bruce Lee as well. And you could use the geography of the various screens to your advantage in Bruce Lee as well. That was one of the things that made it interesting. So rather than just proceeding along a linear path like you did in kung fu bruce lee's screens were they, they were platform game screens basically so you could climb up ladders you could jump across gaps you could fall down pits and you could use those things in combat so for example if you could see that the ninja was standing at ground level just standing there waiting for you to come down and there happened to be a gap in the platform you were standing on above him you could drop down and land on his head and stun him and then finish him off and that was sort of a tactic i hadn't really seen in games at all at that point and again we're lacking some of those defining features we just talked about but again we're starting to get some of them we're starting to see people experiment with these features with a way of representing physical combat in a game that i had at the time i played bruce lee for the first time which would have been 
I don't know, like 1985 or so. At the time I played that for the first time, I, I hadn't seen games do that before. And so that was a really interesting experience for me at the time. So, I mean, what were what were your earliest experiences with beat-em-ups then? Uh, well, I was a Nintendo kid for sure. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I just played a lot of Double Dragon <laughs> back yeah. in the back in the day. And I, I think in terms of, um, you know, even before Capcom, um, you know, our mention earlier in the episode of the Kunio-kun collection, really... Mm-hmm. Technos defined this genre. Yes, absolutely. In its, in its earliest days. So uh, between the Kunio Kun series, Double Dragon, which is often considered part of the Kunio Kun series, and Renegade, mm-hmm. they they essentially created everything we associated with this. Um, yes. So I just remember playing a ton of Double Dragon as a kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, the frustration of the pitfalls and the conveyor belts. <laughs> and like the very there was just something about the presentation of it you know i I played a lot of video games as a kid and i always kind of focused on like uh, fantasy or sci-fi or just like off the wall stuff like mario but like here was this like gritty street experience Hmm. right like you're like in you're in a city that's recognizable as a city and like yep you're i'm not shooting aliens or orcs i'm just like punching shirtless guys and then, like, they drop a chain, and then I pick the chain up, and I'm smacking them with a chain. Like, like the, the viscerality of this idea of this, like, street combat experience and, like, Double mm-hmm. Dragon, like, always kind of stuck with me. Um, yeah. it, like, in the late 80s, early 90s, it's like, this was cool. Like, this was something mm-hmm. that was cool. <laughs> you, you know, it was tough. So... I just always remember like wanting to play Double Dragon, but I never owned it as a kid. I always rented it or like played yeah. it in friends' houses. Um, but talking about Double Dragon and Kunio Kun is a, kind of a good segue into kind of talking about um, kind of the way I contextualize these sorts of games in my head, which is mm-hmm. I think there's two very different schools of design when we talk about beat em ups. Right? So there's what I call arcade design and home design. Um, yes. So an arcade designed beat em up is stuff like we associate um, Double Dragon or Final Fight, um, which is kind of they come from the this background of quarter munching. Mm-hmm. So like very, very tight difficulty that's kind of designed to eat your money in the arcade sense, but all, it just becomes frustrating in the home yeah. sense. Um, and that they're kind of transient experiences where it's just kind of like you sit down and play them, you get through the game, maybe you want to chase a high score, but that's it. They're very straightforward. Um, home designed beat em ups um, take that arcade experience and usually build upon it in an effort to kind of pad out and justify the investment of the purchase of the game. And Mm -hmm. we usually see that in terms of more complex mechanics, things like RPG style progression, character development, uh, shops with money, items to buy, Mm -hmm. stuff like that. So essentially if we compare Double Dragon, which is a very straightforward beat-em-up experience, to the original River City Ransom, which had leveling up stats and, and shops, we kind of can see those two schools of design kind of diverge there. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not hard and fast rules, obviously. Um, Streets of Rage was developed by Sega for the home, mm-hmm. but it has none of these RPG elements. It's just a straight experience. Um, 
and there are arcade games such as specifically any of the uh, any of Capcom's medieval focused arcade games had light leveling up mechanics. Yeah. Um, but not to the depth of like choosing your stat allocations and like buying mm-hmm. new moves. It was just kind of like your power and appearance would change, and it was usually tied to score. So like, yeah. there, there's room for trickle uh, across these different fields, but I think talking about them in terms of these two design sensibilities kind of gives gives us a, a ground base to talk about different types of these sorts of games. Yeah, I think there's there's another interesting distinction here as well, which is um the arcade port that has been designed for the home yes versus, yes. versus an arcade emulation mm-hmm. and I, and i think this is an important one to consider and i've been quite conscious of this playing the capcom beat-em-up collection sure uh and in most cases it's a very simple distinction between whether or not you have infinite credits yeah <laughs> um because if you have infinite credits you can brute force your way through to any of these games very easily. I mean, it might take you hundreds of credits, but if you have infinite credits available to you on a home port, you can get to the end. When I think back to one of the first actual beat-em-ups, as we've defined them, that I played, which was Double Dragon 2 on the Atari ST, in that game, you have two credits. Two! (laughs) You have two credits, and if you're playing two-player, you use both of them. Oh. <laughs> um so my my earliest experience with beat-em-ups because i didn't have an arcade anywhere near me my sole exposure to beat-em-ups for quite a long time was the home versions of arcade games so i played double dragon 2 on the atari st and i played ninja gaiden on the atari Lynx, mm. uh, which is a really good port actually um not talked about at all but this this is the original arcade version of ninja gaiden not that's the, awesome yeah, not everyone the, forgets um, that Ninja Gaiden was originally a beat 'em up. Yeah, yeah, and the Atari Lynx port was fantastic. Um, but again, you had limited credits, so there was no guarantee that you were going to get it to the end, and that gave that game longevity because as you played it more, you got better at it, and you could get further on each credit. Um, whereas if you if you're able to just virtually credit feed your way through a game, there's not necessarily the incentive to do that, especially if the game doesn't reset your score like for example i was playing um king of dragons the other day which i'm sure will come up again uh, shortly um i was playing king of dragons the other day and uh credit feeding my way through it and your score does not reset in that and it doesn't even do the thing that a lot of arcade games do particularly capcom ones where it adjusts the last digit of your score uh to say how many coins you've used and so In King of Dragons, there's no distinction score-wise between someone who has played it through on a single credit and someone who has spent the equivalent of like 25 quid on it or whatever. And for me, that kind of gives me a bit of conflict because I enjoy playing the game, but in some ways, in some ways, it, it, it makes me sort of question kind of the meaning of the experience, if you see what I mean. Yeah, yeah. If that makes sense. And, yeah, and so... Yeah. From a design I, I, perspective, yeah. in, terms of, in terms of raw gameplay design, it's a problematic design. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so for me, I actually tend to find that perfect arcade conversions aren't always the most desirable thing when it comes to these games. Sure. Um, and if you do have an arc, a perfect arcade conversion, I prefer playing through with some sort of limitation that I place on myself. 
so for example if i'm going to play like final fight or something i'll say right i'm going to give myself nine credits that's all i'm going to get and see how far i can get for, for me personally that's how i prefer to play i guess it, i guess if you've got infinite credits it, it's nice to have that option rather than being forced into playing in a particular way but yeah i i, I know that there's there's going to be people out there who, who will just credit feed their way through to the end declare the game an incredibly shallow experience and then never play it again yeah one Which of is... my favorite things it was something capcom games did a lot in the dreamcast era when they had straight arcade ports was a bit of both mm -hmm. so they would gate the amount of credits you had based on how much you played yes yes so, there's, like, there's a lot of shoot em ups do this as well yeah. you had to unlock additional credits by by playing more so as it mm. start it started with you having to get better and better and better and then you could choose how many credits you wanted in the option screen based on how many you had unlocked yes so like your skill and familiarity would grow and then by the time you were good at the game then you could infinite credit it just to have like a therapeutic no no stress playthrough mm -hmm. later if you wanted i love yeah. that yeah Yeah, that's that's a really fun way to handle it. Um, but yeah, I, I agree. It can be problematic, but it all depends on your your reasons for playing the game. And like part yeah, of the absolutely. reason, part of the reason I I fell in love with belt scrolling beat 'em ups like later in life. Like yeah, like I liked Final Fight and Double Dragon as a kid, but like I really didn't fall like deeply in love with this genre until as an adult or in my late teens when I started playing with emulation. Mm -hmm. And just being yeah. able to play the arcade versions of these games on MAME in the home. Yeah. And, like, I came to consider them, like, a very therapeutic process, mm -hmm. like, for me, because I could just credit feed them. And, like, as we've discussed many times, like, different people play games for different reasons. And one mm -hmm. of the reasons I play games is art appreciation. So, yes. like, I like an opportunity to credit feed because I love to just be able to see the whole game. Yes. See, yes. see every background, see every enemy, see every boss without having to stress myself about whether or not I can actually get there and achieve it. Like, mm -hmm. so, like, credit feeding is, like, to me, a way to experience the entirety of the game, see all the art, hear all the music, do all the things without being stressed. So, like, yeah. I, I really found playing belt-scrolling beat-em-ups with infinite credits just a low-stress, therapeutic way to burn an hour when I had a bad day. Like, yeah, they, were, absolutely. they were fun and visceral. They were repetitive without being boring. So you could yeah. get, in a, get in a rhythm of enjoying them, see all the stuff, hear all the music. So, like... I'm always at odds with how I feel about that because the part of me that loves analyzing mechanics and design knows that credit feeding is garbage. But <laughs> but at the same time, I've had so many positive experiences with with playing beat em ups that way. Yeah, well, I think I think the other thing that ties in with this is what I, what I mentioned when we talked about hit stun, which is that beat em ups have a, a an element of physicality to them, don't they? Yes. So they there is there is there is a feeling of what you're doing with your hands having a direct impact with what's happening on the screen and getting audio really satisfying audio visual feedback on what is going on and i think part of what you're describing there is to do with that as well so the therapeutic side of the beat-em-ups doesn't matter about the score doesn't matter about the credit feeding you are getting a feeling of satisfaction of release of catharsis of whatever fro just from the simple pleasure of that capcom noise yeah <laughs> it's, it's amazing how much some of these old beat-em-ups felt like they had rumble 
Yes. Bef- before yes. Rumble was a thing. The combination of the physicality on screen with the hit stun and the audio together yes. creates such a connection in the brain to a, a yeah. feeling of that physical interaction. Yeah. 16-bit beat-em-ups have some of the best sound effects in all of gaming. Oh, yeah. Just like Capcom stuff in particular, their their punch-and-kick impact sounds are some of the most satisfying sounds I have ever heard, ever. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. And this translates to other genres. Like, uh, very very strong, like, like hit-stun and, like, satisfying connection of audio to hit-stun is one of the rubrics I have for, like, good games versus bad games. Yeah. Like, one of my primary arguments against the early Assassin's Creed titles was that combat was dissatisfying because there was no feeling of hit-stun. Yeah. And and so, like, it's one of the things I use to, like, gauge where, like... It's why East games are, like, the best action RPGs. Mm -hmm. Because, like, the hit-stun and the impact is so solid... That like the combat is instantly satisfying. So yeah, be- beat 'em ups have mastered this, but the trickle effect to other genres is like so important. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So, and I mean that is that, like you say, that's informed other genres. With the most obvious example, of course, is the is the the fighting game, the one on one fighting game. Yeah. And this is just a, a sort of aside, but I, I found it quite interesting looking back on this and doing a bit of research for this, that um, when I was growing up, um, the word beat-em-up was used to describe both beat-em-ups and fighting games. Yes. And I've, I've said this to, to people online before, and they're like, what are you talking about? Um, it, it seems, from, from what I can make out, that this was a thing that was fairly, fairly UK-centric. Okay. I've heard um, it before. Yeah. So, um, f- from from various sources, I- I've seen that it, it was kind of a a way that the UK games magazines of the late 80s and early 90s would express things. They were very keen on putting specific genre labels on things, and they enjoyed, like, the anything M-up. Sometimes it's a joke. Um, but, yeah, beat-em-up was a very established term that was basically any game that involved punching things was a beat-em-up. Yeah. regardless of whether or not it scrolled or whether it was one-on-one now sometimes they were distinguished as scrolling beat-em-ups and one-on-one beat-em-ups which is okay. the distinction we have today but they were still both called beat-em-ups um with the advent of the internet and sort of global conversation about this sort of thing that distinction has kind of gone away and people are people tend to accept the beat-em-up fighting game divide now but yeah i just found that was that was quite an interesting thing um and a sort of cultural division almost um in terms of things there i mean it's a minor thing in the long term of things but uh, yeah i just thought that was quite interesting they are important i mean they're integral to each other yeah especially in a capcom's universe because let's not forget that final fight and street fighter take place in the same universe yes well i mean final Final fight final fight was originally going to be street fighter 2 wasn't it Oh, I, I didn't know that. But yeah, that makes so sense, I, because Street Fighter 1 has, like, level progression. Yeah. And, like, Street Fighter 1 isn't just what Street Fighter 2 became. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, so, so yeah, the, the, the story behind Final Fight is it was originally going to be the sequel to Street Fighter, which is partly why, if you look at things like the interface design of um, Final Fight and compare it to Street Fighter, things like the health bars and the score display and stuff are identical to Street Fighter 2. 
Mm. Um, but then they subsequently developed Street Fighter 2 as its own specific thing and made Final Fight its own thing as well. So they, at some point they decided that, yes, these need to be two distinct experiences. Um, but yeah, yeah, Final Fight was originally intended to be a sequel to Street Fighter. Amazing. I mean, it makes perfect sense. I mean, they're all, mm -hmm. they, they're all together, right? So Street yeah. Fighter Alpha introduced Final Fight characters into the Street Fighter universe, yeah. right? Saying that this has all been together. Like, it, I love it. <laughs> yeah. All right, so let's get down to the nitty-gritty of talking favorites. All righty, go for it. Yeah, so, like, I think um, yeah, one, one you mentioned earlier, like, my all-time favorite beat-em-up is Capcom's King of Dragons. Mm-hmm, yeah. 100%, for so many reasons. Like, formatively for me, um, there was a King of Dragons cabinet in the mall near my house. And my dad and I would go, and we would save our quarters up all month long, and then when it was time to go to the mall, so my mom and my little sister would go to the hairdresser, and my dad and I had to, like, kill an hour while my mom and my sister were at the hairdresser. <laughs> like, this was our go-to machine. Like, my yeah. dad and I playing King of Dragons, and I just remember, like, waiting for it. Um, it so, like, it's just, like, a deep personal memory for me, like, th th this genre and that game specifically. Um, and then just from a visual perspective, um, like King of Dragons kind of cemented that aesthetic that I find like most pleasing in games, mm -hmm. just like exaggerated cartoony character designs, like, like a chunky softness, like bright, um, bright oversaturated colors. Um, it just doesn't take itself too seriously. Like, it's kind of... All that stuff is what I like most about games. Like, when a game is like that. And that all kind of stemmed from my love of King of Dragons. Um, it's also, like, a really clear example of um, Capcom experimenting with um, this obsession they had with melding the RPG with the beat-em-up. Yeah. Um, and this would all eventually culminate in the greatest RPG beat-em-up crossover of all time which was Capcom's Dungeons & Dragons series. Um, yeah. But King of Dragons had some of these early examples of this, like exploring RPG classes, right? So, like, your characters weren't just, like, agile guy, middle-range guy, large guy, which was, like, that's pretty normal beat-em-up stuff. But, like, instead, like, the classes were actual, like, classic tabletop role-playing game classes. You had a warrior, a cleric, a mage, an elf ranger um and in each of them had slightly different performance parameters based on their class um that being tied to one of the most distinguishing features of king of dragons um that king of dragons is a game with ranged combat yeah it's a beat-em-up with ranged combat not just like you can pick up a gun or a, a, a knife to throw every now and then which had been common in the genre for a long time but every character in king of dragons when they swing their weapon it, the weapon sends out either an energy wave or a magic burst or an arrow and depending on which class you choose the power and range of that energy shot is defined by who they are so like the the ranger has very long range because he's shooting with a bow but his hits are like half as much as what the warrior can deal so yep. there's a real 
distinction there, like how you play the game, what character class you pick almost radically changes the way you approach the distance and the keep away play, which is a necessary part of the game. So it shifted the genre in interesting ways by introducing that kind of element of range, which I think makes it a really interesting and unique entry in the genre. Um, and, and just overall, it's just a, a really pleasant game to play, right? Like massive bosses with cool things going on. Um, you, that score you were mentioning that never resets, it never resets because your score is also your experience. And then you, you level up, which also changes the visual appearance of your shield and your weapon and the damage it does. So if that were to reset, there's no way to track that, that, that RPG level up mechanic. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it just it did a lot of different things. At the time, it was the first time I had ever played a beat 'em up that wasn't set in like a dirty city, mm -hmm. which was great. Like, wait, so like, this this game can combine the things I've learned to love about Double Dragon and Final Fight, but it combines it with a genre I love even more, a visual presentation I love even more. Now I'm blasting orcs with arrows instead of like punching dudes in leather jackets, and yes. there's just something about that that was like for me like super special. Yeah, definitely. So, I think for me, um, again, I, I kind of sort of gravitated towards the the non-standard ones at the time. But back on our Konami episode, we talked about the Asterix one, for example. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, Konami's so, licensed ones are legendary. Yeah. yeah I mean, Konami's, Konami's licensed game generally were all fantastic. So, there was the Turtles one, there was the Simpsons one, and there was the Asterix one, which is probably the one I spent the most time with. Um, just because Asterix was the the property that i'd i'd spent the most time with as a kid so I'd, I'd spent more time reading asterix comics than i had sort of engaging with with turtles and the simpsons at that point so it was a game that i had a personal connection to i liked the characters it was a game that sort of had um a lot of sort of series fan service to it as well so there were lots of sort of cameos from characters that you'd seen in the books and um the art in that game was good enough that they were recognizable as well mm. so it was it was beautiful pixar wonderful character design that was it was still obviously pixel art and sort of limited by the resolutions of the time but the graphics in the game were recognizable enough to make it feel like you were you were playing one of the comics um but like even back then it was obvious that there were certain things about that game that made it especially satisfying so like most of the other Konami games, again, it had very good hits done. It had some interesting special moves. Um, and it had an element of comedy as well, uh, which I think is... It's not necessarily an essential part of this, but I think it's it, it's something that can make this genre quite effective, is having a comedic element to it as well. Sure. Sort of the, I mean, this, the situations you are in in a beat-em-up are ridiculous. It is it is a usually a one or two people against hundreds of enemies, which is absurd. Um, and sort of my my favourite examples from the past are the ones that kind of acknowledge this absurdity and allow you to do ridiculous things. So things like where in the Turtles game you could grab an enemy and you could throw them out of the screen, and it would mm -hmm. leave cracks in the camera. And yeah. in the Asterix game, where you could you could pick someone up and it would do the thing they did in the comics, where they just batter them back and forth over their head, or swing them around their head and then fling them off over the horizon and that sort of thing. 
and just sort of just sort of acknowledging that absurd side of things as well and sort of it really helped with the with with kind of the feeling of making you feel superhuman which i think is 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 sort of part of this as well yeah yeah it's funny how like challenging beat-em-ups can be because like at the core they're like massive power fantasies like they're just about you being the best right like the most the most invincible toughest guy ever who can like wade through these crowds yeah, I don't think I've ever played the Asterix game. Um, I'm not a surprise. I, I don't think, I don't think the original arcade version had a huge presence in the states. Um, I do know that the Genesis port of it did come out in the states, but like, if you were American, like Asterix wasn't really a thing. So yeah. like when Asterix games came over, it was just like we just thought they were a game. Like this was a yeah. game. Like we didn't really know it had a, unless you were like a comic guy who like understood and knew that but, like the general american public in like the general gaming community when like an asterix game came out we just thought it was a game franchise yeah the, the other thing with asterix is that there are there are a lot of asterix games yes as well um and some of those were specific to consoles and nothing to do with that konami arcade game as well so uh, which I, I found a bit frustrating back at the time because I, I really liked that arcade game, but I, I think I mentioned before, because arcade culture was not really a thing in the UK, the only time you could play arcade games in the UK was when you went to the seaside. Right, um, right. And so it was v- pretty rare that I had the opportunity to play a lot of these games in their native habitats because... I mean, you. I lived sort of like in the middle of the most landlocked part of the UK it's possible to live in at the time. And and so going to the seaside was a um, sort of a, a rare treat. And so these games became very special to me because they were I came to associate them with sort of nice experiences like family holidays and going somewhere nice and going somewhere with like nice weather or fun things to do with that sort of thing as well. Mm-hmm. So for me, I think so, sort of the beat-em-up genre has those sort of positive associations from outside the game as well yeah i mean I, I i guess that sort of ties in with what you were saying with your your memories of king of dragons as well so you've got that childhood memory of playing that game under those circumstances and sort of having the opportunity to do that and i i bet that meant that you as a kid actually in some ways looked forward to your mum going shopping and getting their hair done and that sort of thing because it meant that you could go and spend some time with your dad playing king of dragons absolutely it did yeah absolutely yeah. it did like it was die like my dad and i would talk about it <laughs> like <laughs> like how many quarters do you have like is this the weekend we take down the minotaur like it was like a thing yeah like so yeah i, I mean that's arcade culture in general like mm-hmm. I, you know but but beat-em-ups are such an integral part of arcade culture in the, in the 80s and 90s well i guess the 90s more than anything right yeah like but the earliest games were were late late 80s but i I always just associate like the two things i associate most with the arcade is the fighting game and the beat-em-up like above above anything else is the fighting game and the beat-em-up yeah so and it's always it's always memories it's always positive memories the other thing i loved about um beat-em-ups in the arcade was that they weren't a competitive experience yeah so like i'm not a highly competitive gamer at all um, so like, I love fighting games, but like not nearly as much as I like the idea of like going to the arcade with my friend and playing with my friend to to achieve a common goal together, or like heaven knows playing one of the old arcade Konami big cabinets for Turtles or X Men, yeah. and 
with three of my friends all like jammed in there together like this is such an experiential thing yeah 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 absolutely absolutely i mean uh, most of the other games i want to talk about are ones i didn't get to experience in the arcade as a kid because they're just really bizarre or interesting examples that i discovered later during my like emulation obsession phases yeah but but king stuff like king of dragons the original final fight and like konami's x-men were just so formative for me as a youth in terms of like positive memories and like dialing that up to like my associations with video games in general like integrally tied to the beat 'em up as a genre, the genre of the beat 'em up is like everything I love about gaming. Yeah. So, uh, what are some other ones? Uh, uh, I'm a Neo Geo guy, as we often mm-hmm. talk about. So, like, I think it's cool to mention um, that um, you know uh, SNK is often kind of like made fun of in their early days for kind of how me too a lot of stuff on the Neo Geo was right like. World yeah. Heroes catches a lot of flack for being like a Street Fighter clone or whatever, stuff like that. And uh, but they were right up there with the beat 'em up too. And like a lot of their beat 'em ups weren't necessarily like ripoffs of um, Final Fight um, and Streets of Rage. They um, uh, one of the series they're perhaps best known for in that genre is the Sengoku series, which yeah. f- from uh, was unique in how like super Japanese it was. Mm-hmm. Um, because it wasn't just like your like punk man fighting other punk mans in alleys. Like Sengoku had a weird Japanese like supernatural setting where you were like moving back and forth between like the spirit world and like the the physical world, and you were fighting like hordes of like ghost samurais. Yeah, so, like so, it had just a really unique aesthetic. It was totally different. Um, it had some mechanical like niches that weren't present in like other games. So. Um, you know, one of the things I associate always with beat 'em ups, um, not all of them, obviously, but like the classics like Kunio Kun and Final Fight is uh, the temporary weapons you pick up. Yeah. Right? Like, oh, you found a crowbar. Like, that crowbar has like 15 hits, so like make the most of it. Um, Sengoku had that too, but it was always like swords. So, like, you, you could either get like a regular sword, a dual wielded sword, or like a, like a giant, uh, like a giant Nodachi. Um, so it was always just cool because it just had like that super Japanese flavor. Um, and you had like spirit transformations. Um, you could turn into like different forms that had different movesets on like a temporary basis, which um, was something I had never experienced in those types of games before. Um, and there's, there's actually three Sengoku games. Um, Sengoku 1 was 91, Sengoku 2 was 93, um, Sengoku 2 felt a lot like the first one, it had the transformations, except for you always had a sword in 2. So, like, someone in that design room sat down and they were like, what was the most fun part of Sengoku 1 when you got a sword? So, Sengoku 2, you just always have a sword, which was awesome. But then there was a huge time gap. So, like, Sengoku 3 dropped in 2001. Yeah. Which is 10 years after the first one. <laughs> um, incredible. So, like, Sengoku 3 is a beautiful example of kind of, like, the magic of the Neo Geo. <laughs> like, how, how long that, that console persisted and how amazing it was as a piece of hardware. Because if you compare visually and performance-wise Sengoku 1 to Sengoku 3... It's like, how is this on the same arcade hardware? <laughs> like, how? Yeah. How is it even possible? 
it made huge improvements over the it wasn't as clunky and slow it was beautiful and fluid it had these great combo attacks in the modern way we expect um it didn't have all the transformations and the weapons but what it did have was six different playable characters all with like radically different um move sets and combo progressions and stuff so it was just a, it's a really neat series, um, and I always love to point it out because it has a very specific Japanese flavor that not a lot of this genre has. Because uh, being this like 80s genre, it, uh, beat 'em ups tended to have this very much just like 80s American punk city feel. Um, so Sengoku was like, no, this is very specifically like so Japanese, it's ridiculous. There's ninjas yeah. and samurai and like chanting in the background and yokai and like enemies with tengu masks so i always just appreciated it for that yeah definitely i'm i'm not especially familiar with those ones so it, uh they're the ones i, I do want to have a look at i think i've I think i've got some form of port of them somewhere but i think it might be the crappy mu versions so oh. i haven't really looked into those but I, I have a feeling at least some of those are available in the arcade archive series as well so i might have to oh, investigate it's those at some point yeah they're uh they're available um but mm -hmm. yeah you, you really got to do yourself a favor and look up footage of three it is like yeah. it is you know in terms of like pixel art achievement it is like <laughs> you know like 2001 pixel art still running on 1990 hardware it's just yeah it's an absolute like masterwork yeah um other stuff uh, i really wanted to call out um and this is obviously i'm making a specific effort not to like talk about final fight and streets of rage and yes the konami stuff like i don't want to talk about the stuff everyone's played right so like i also want to talk about the dungeon makai series have you ever played any of the dungeon no, I, makai I've, games i've never heard of this so i'm interested to hear what these are um so yeah you should look them up um so dungeon makai um I, it's cheating, right? I only know Dungeon Makai from emulation. Mm -hmm. But, like, in the sphere of, like, beat-em-up fandom, like, Dungeon Makai's legendary because it's weird. <laughs> it's just <laughs> absolutely weird. Um, they did not make their way west. Um, the first one had a Super Nintendo port, but I don't think that made its way west either. This is a pretty much Japan-only franchise. Um, which is a shame because they are amazing. Um, they were developed by Winky Soft, which is a studio that perhaps is best known for their work on the Super Nintendo and Saturn era Super Robot Wars games. Right. Um, but so like a lot of licensed work in their roster. They're not like a known entity really, but these are original games they made. Um, and they're kind of revolutionary in a lot of ways. Um, specifically, um, there were special moves in these games. Mm -hmm. um, and now it was very common in beat em ups to have like a special move, right? Like if you pressed jump and attack together in Final Fight, you would do like a, like a carousel kick that would like clear the screen or whatever. Like it yeah. wasn't yeah. uncommon. But the difference between Denjin Makai and other beat em ups of the era. Um, was that Dungeon Makai had multiple special moves tied to a bar that would recharge as you fought. Right. Um, usually in um, beat-em-ups, it was kind of typical for these special moves to A, either drain your own life bar, 
So you had to make a gamble decision whether or not, like, am I in a situation where I can sacrifice some of my life bar knowing that the enemies coming are going to take far more of it away if they get to me, essentially. Like, yeah. There's that game you play. Or you just had, like, like bombs and a shoot them up You just had, like, three of them per life or whatever. Yeah. Um, Denjin Makai had a bar that would refill fighting game style as you played. So you could actually incorporate the special moves into your your combos and your strategy because they weren't um finite entities um and every character had a couple different ones that you could pull off based on um button combinations like pulling back and doing the special move or holding up and doing the special move so you could actually deploy them tactically based on the situations you were in yeah um and when i say different characters i mean six different characters which was mm -hmm. for 1994 that was a pretty big roster um, in a game um, yeah. and once again going back to like some of the other games I've talked about today and drawn attention to uh, Dungeon Makai was so radically different because of how weird it was it wasn't um, a typical like city gritty city brawler it wasn't even medieval it wasn't even solid sci-fi it just had this bizarre anime comic inspired like slightly cyberpunk but like in the modern day, but then there's just like mutants and robots and sci-fi stuff, just like all mashed together in this like big, brightly colored like anime soup. So like, yeah. out of the six characters you could play as, there was like classic like tough guy. There was like a like a girl cop who was like also like a martial artist. But then there was like and, and like a big wrestler dude, and those were like mm -hmm. your three standard characters that like made sense. But then there was like a like a beast girl with like a mace that could extend who was like based on like the son goku like legend of the monkey king character archetype yeah. there yeah. was a, a cyborg like robot guy and just like a like an alien like bio beast that looked like <laughs> like looked like a monster from giver and um so it was just weird like you could be these like crazy characters with varied move sets so like there's always a ton of reason to keep playing dungeon makai because like every character felt so different because they weren't even constrained by like what was possible in reality because like i'm a robot now <laughs> like what can he do that's, <laughs> what can he do that's different um so it was just this combination of setting and varied and interesting character design um sense of humor regarding like some of the bosses and like the way they act and behave like just really accentuated and overblown animation it's just really like one of the highest quality like examples of this like 90s era of the genre yeah um, I'm, I'm just watching footage of it now this looks amazing it's so good <laughs> it's so good and then there was a sequel uh dungeon guardians dungeon makai 2 that had eight playable characters Oof. Um, and they got even more, like, so then they added a ninja, like, like a Chinese karate master that also had, like, magic flaming cards that he could throw. Yeah. Um, the monster, the bio-beast monster from the first one turned out that that was just the larval phase. <laughs> so, like, you get to be what that hatches into in the second one. <laughs> But that is what it hatches into is a beautiful girl with angel wings that looks like Nina from the Breath of Fire series. 
And then they introduce a new, like, hideous bio-beast, which is even crazier <laughs> looking than the one in the previous one. Um, so, like, Dungeon Mekai 2 is just more of the same, but just refined better, right? Like, plays better, looks more beautiful, um, just more crazy over-the-top enemies, like mutants. Um, and one of the ways Dungeon Mekai 2 really distinguishes itself from, like, other games in the genre, because um, this was a prolific genre, um, the backgrounds are ridiculous in Dungeon mm. Kai 2. And, like, full of, like, subtle animation. So, like, little things going on, but, like, as you mentioned, like, adds a lot of humor and, like, a sense of, like, a world that's genuinely alive to the proceedings. So, yeah. like, al although the gameplay itself isn't hyper... Um, revolutionary in terms of other games of the time, like the way in which it presented itself was so distinct that it became special. So like you would walk into, uh, you, you'd bust your way into like a diner and there would be like enemies eating at tables in the background. <laughs> and then they would like, they would like look up surprise and there would be like a surprise, like exclamation point above their head. They'd put their meal down and then step into the foreground and then you would fight them. It would be like stuff like that, that like yeah. made, made this world feel like a real place. Even though it was insane, and you were just punching a giant purple alligator, like <laughs> the world felt realistic because it was alive with things happening in it. Um, so it's just great. It's a great game, and like I, I just want more people to know about it and watch it and see it. Yeah, this looks great. I say I've watched some some footage of, of that game in the in the second one as well. These these look fantastic. The character design is super nineties anime. Oh yeah, oh, and yeah. it's just. Oh, it's just it's just ridiculous and uh yeah there's some seems to be sort of some sort of cabal style shooting stages in the bonus stages of the second one as well mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which looks like a lot of fun yeah cool gonna have to check those out i think uh like i said i've never heard of those before so uh yeah thanks for sharing those if i can introduce one new franchise or one new <laughs> game to you and our <laughs> listening audience every time like that's my goal like, I want to blow your mind with the weird shit. And, like, Dungeon Makai is as weird as it gets with, with beat-em-ups, really. Unless we're counting about Puri Rula. Puli Rula. Have you ever seen that one? That's the... Is that the one where there's, like, a boss that's, like, a pair of legs sticking out of a... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I have seen that one. I haven't played it, but I have seen that one. I don't even I don't even know if that's what yeah I, I don't even know the actual... <laughs> it's, it's, some, it's something like that, but, like, that's a... Puli yeah. Rula. Puli Rula. P U L I R U L A. That is a weird ass game. That's Taito. Mm. But I can't even speak to that. I've never played it. It's just like legendary no. for its strangeness. Yes, yeah, so I've come across that a few times. And I think, if I remember rightly, I think um, Game Grumps did a playthrough of that on their channel recently. Okay. So if, so if you want to see that in, in action, I think they've played that recently. So. That is uh, that is there, but uh, yeah, notoriously strange that one. <laughs> when enemies are hit, they turn into animals that run off screen. The player is awarded points if they walk into the animals. <laughs> of course, of course. To add to that, uh, got to add to the ever-growing collection of animals, fruit, and cake from the uh, from eighties and nineties arcade games. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. What else did I have? Um, I, I know I said I was going to avoid talking about the popular stuff, but I think I think we do have to talk a little bit about the um, the Capcom D and D games. Oh, of course, of course, because they're just the best, <laughs> the best. Like they're the best. Uh, I remember 
losing my mind when they actually like made those available on like the PlayStation Store. The like yeah. the the ports of them because they to to collect the Saturn ports is just an exercise in futility. <laughs> um, <laughs> but just uh, once again, like a beautiful example, like bridging the gap between um, hybridizing RPG mechanics with this genre. So like it took everything we've talked about loving about these games, right? The sense of physicality and progression but just added all these little mechanical wrinkles that made it feel like also you were playing a role-playing game so they were yeah. bra- branching paths with choices um uh, the the dnd classes that all played differently um and what was really especially different and unique about these games was you had an item inventory yeah and a button you could press to pull that up. Do you want to use a heal potion? Do you want to throw a dagger? Do you want to cast a spell? And like you could actually like do that mid battle. This like wheel would come up. Like it was almost like casting a spell in the original Secret of Mana. Like this yeah. wheel would come up that you could scroll through. Um, and I just they're just an example of like everything that this genre did well. Just mm-hmm. perfect presentation, physicality, art, and music. Uh, just all culminating in like such an experiential game, you know. You yeah. can play through it in twenty minutes, but it just made you want to play through it again, like instantly. Yeah. yeah, those those ports you mentioned are actually really good as well because they incorporate a bunch of sort of um, meta game elements. As yes, well yeah, that encourage you to. Stuff. Yeah, so it's, I mean, it, it's it's not just a standard platform achievements either. There's there's like sort of specific things that it encourages you to you to do in the game a certain number of times, or encouraging you to go routes you haven't been before, and that sort of thing. And that that really kind of addresses the the issue I was talking about at the beginning with things like sort of um, like the credit feeding issue and so on. If you've got that additional bit of meta gaming structure in there as well, that immediately makes it much more interesting, um, even if you can still credit feed your way through the whole thing i think too like those kind of features especially like in modernized ports like that um address one of the genre's biggest issues in terms of like reputation which is like mm-hmm. i think people in general because of like the ability to quarter feed and stuff have a tendency to dismiss beat-em-ups as like not mechanically complex yes like, yes absolutely I, I think people who don't Take, spend a lot of time thinking about or analyzing mechanics really tend to dismiss beat-em-ups as just mindless and like not challenging but like everything we've mentioned in talking about them that are like inherent to the core of their gameplay the it, taking advantage of timing distance and hit stun space and volume enemy management um they were complex even from the earliest examples of the genre. But yeah. then, like, as the genre evolved and added things like combo attacks, blocking and dodging, item collection and use, like, these are challenging and mechanically rich games with a lot of, like, programming depth behind them. Um, yeah. in, in, in the best examples, obviously there are, like, crappy, cheap, cheap, simple ones. But, like, there is a rich amount of design in this genre to plumb the depths of and modern ports with like achievement systems like that tacked on really actually form as a, a tutorial in a way where they're encouraging you to explore the depths of the game that you might never have actually considered in terms of the way it's built and designed yeah um it's simple things like not knowing you can 
cancel enemy attacks with like proper timing and yeah if, if i never would have thought to even attempt that in in, a, in that game until like there was a thing to like do it 50 times <laughs> yeah. and then it radically changed my entire way of considering how to play it yeah yeah that sort of learn by doing is really powerful and there's a lot of developers that still haven't kind of nailed that um in, in sort of games that have mechanical depth and complexity. This is going slightly off point, but one of the things I've um, noticed about the people who are playing the new Grand Blue Fantasy fighting game at the minute, because that, okay. that came out very recently in Japan, is that um, the RPG mode in that is apparently a very effective way of learning the game as a whole. So it, it's oh, not a separate okay. experience, but it is designed to be a very effective way of teaching you the mechanics that you need to learn in that game as well. And again, it's just the whole learn by doing thing, putting you in different situations, giving you the opportunity to experiment with them and understanding what those mechanics are doing in different circumstances. Yeah, and that's so valuable, especially for something... Fighting games have a similar reputation as beat-em-ups do, right? Like, people who aren't in the fighting game community with any great amount of depth tend to think you can just button mash your way through and you can but like <laughs> once you play your first tutorial mode in a guilty gear game it's just like the that that meme of like that brain that like in each thing is like the brain expanding and like lighting up like more and more <laughs> it's like as soon as you get involved in like the tutorials of something like a fighting game um you realize depth that wasn't there and like even even something as simple as like street fighter 2 like mm -hmm. i remember when that modern port of that modern hd remake of street fighter 2 came out and like exploring the tutorials in that like I, I had no idea like the depth to which you could even you could play classic street fighter 2 with yeah like and and beat em ups in a very similar way like watch someone on youtube who's spent like years of their life perfecting the timing and cancel elements in the original final fight yeah it's like they're not even playing the same game yeah that you're playing it's unreal watch like a no damage final fight run without tool assist mm -hmm. and like feel inferior as a human being <laughs> like like it's there like the complexity is there if you want to explore it and that's one of the things i think is most beautiful about this genre is um i love things that are easy to pick up hard to master and i think that's the greatest design sensibility is when something can achieve easy to pick up hard to master and yeah. um the beat em up really does that well mm -hmm. yeah definitely were there any other titles that you uh you had in mind I think I've mentioned most of the ones I wanted to bring up at this point. Like I say, it wasn't it wasn't the genre I had a huge amount of exposure to growing up, but it was one that I always enjoyed playing. Um, but the, in terms of the number of games that I experienced back in the day, it was fairly limited. So I've I've been really enjoying sort of discovering stuff that I I didn't even know the existence of until recently. So like that Capcom beat 'em up bundle has been great for educating me on stuff that I'd never played before. Sure. Like, like for Final Fight, for example, is one that uh, I I hadn't played before. I had seen a lot about it, and I, I remember reading about the Super NES version and so on, but I never actually played it until this Capcom beat 'em up collection. So, um, yeah, so that was that was a big gap in my knowledge. Like, 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 like I say, I, I have some fond memories of like Double Dragon Two, Ninja Gaiden, and that sort of thing, and Asterix. But 
yeah i'm really glad it's making it making a comeback now because it's it's sort of an opportunity to to go back and revisit a lot of these games that i would have really enjoyed feeding a bunch of 10 p's into back in the day <laughs> sure i mean i'm gonna be honest with you i have another whole section about like exploring the transition into like the modern indie sphere and like how these games have evolved to incorporate rpg elements but we've <laughs> already been on the classics for more than an hour i feel like that's probably a, a new episode all, yes all in and of itself yes i i think it probably is and i think there's probably scope for talking about a couple of other things in there as well which is sort of um what i would probably regard as beat em up adjacent games um because there's there's certain genres of games that have a lot of the elements that we're talking about but they're obviously their own distinct thing as well so i'm, I'm thinking specifically of several different types of things here i'm thinking specifically of character action games so things like devil may cry bayonetta oh, that yeah, sort of thing yeah yeah um i'm also thinking of warriors games which are also uh which are often described by people as beat-em-ups but i don't it's think true. that's it yeah i don't think that's a necessarily an accurate description of them um and also stuff like um senra kagura as well which um senra kagura burst is absolutely a beat-em-up uh the other ones i would argue are not i would argue that they are arena-based fighting games uh but i mean that's that's a whole other discussion for another day i think but um yeah so i, th I think there's a lot to discuss about with these modern games like you said like I, I am very keen to talk about scott pilgrim for one thing and river city girls we've got a lot to talk about i'm sure um i might actually get around to playing double dragon neon at some point even oh you got it <laughs> um but yeah i think that's probably a good place to hold it there and there's there's a lot to talk about in a subsequent episode there so uh we will add that to our ever-growing chart of things to talk about in the future all right let's wrap that up there then so as always would you like to tell people where to find you online Absolutely. You can always find my artwork and get a hold of me at MrGilderPixels.com or on Twitter and Instagram at MrGilderPixels. Mm -hmm. And now you know why it's MrGilderPixels as well, don't you? Because I love Skies of Arcadia. There we go. Fantastic. All right. And you can find me on MarioGamer.net. Like I say, at the time of recording, I'm just kicking off the Atelier Mega feature. So uh, please look forward to some coverage of Atelier Iris, first of all, followed by Manakemia, followed by all of the other games that i've apparently committed myself to covering um <laughs> i can't I, wait I, to hear you talk about manichemia i've never yeah. actually played those so i don't really know what makes them different and distinct from standard atelier games yeah yeah no i i'm really intrigued by the whole series which is why i want to do this so looking forward to this and i've had some really really sort of positive response to my announcement of doing this feature as well there's a lot of people excited to read about this whole series in succession so i think it's going to be a really interesting thing to do even if it takes a long time so looking forward to that um if you're listening to this on soundcloud you can also find a video version over on youtube uh, and also on my youtube channel you have things like my regular features uh, which are playthroughs of warriors games on wednesdays final fantasy marathon on fridays and atari a to z on tuesday thursday and saturday um and there's also sort of occasional feature videos going up there as well when i can find the time to actually record those and edit those as well so uh please enjoy basically and subscribe and do all that good stuff that you do to youtubers just remains for us to say then as always thank you very much for watching and or listening and we'll see you again next time
Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, remember you can watch a video version of it over on YouTube. Be sure to check out moegamer.net for new articles on Japanese and Japanese-inspired video games, new and old, every weekday. Every month, Moe Gamer features an in-depth exploration of an individual game or series as its cover game, so be sure to check the archives to see if your favourite has had a deep dive yet. If you'd like to support the site directly, please consider becoming a patron or buying me a coffee. You can find links to do both over on moegamer.net. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.